1: Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.
2: MB. out of contact without a bio. Got it to go!
3: Push the foul! Well, there you go, Ray. Didn't you? I wanted to jazz it up a little bit this morning. That is the Sixers' victory song, as played by Brandon Taz Niederauer at Natterauer Music. Nice modern spin on it. Love it. So <laughs> you you just like the you like the classic? Yeah, see? I like the classic. <laughs> well, I may play a different version later. Even even another version, because uh, I think there are going to be a few more. But. The big story, Ray Dinger, as you and I gather on a horribly rainy, windy Saturday morning in the Delaware Valley, is that last night, your Philadelphia Sixers managed to stay alive, roared back from the dead, beat Miami Heat by 20, 99 to 79. You know what, Ray? It was like watching a playoff game from the (laughs) mid-90s. Right? It was. Yeah, it was kind of. Like Knicks Pistons back in the day. Nobody can score. Good defense, physical, tough. Um, However, it was a game where the Sixers hit for 16 threes, which is a number you should remember because they hit for 16% of their threes in the first two games. Mm -hmm. And they were hitting last night. Um, All right, several angles to the game. I want to start talking to you, Ray, about what is clearly the biggest by far, which is Joel Embiid. We must have total respect for Embiid torn ligaments in his thumb, broken face, hours off of the concussion protocol and he comes back to save the season. Um and and I mean I mean I heard Howard say like he didn't think he played that well. He played great. He, yeah, he I, I thought he did too. Yeah. I I know he didn't score a ton of points, but first of all, he's exhausted for not playing for a week, for not moving for a week. They had said a couple days ago, you know when you have a concussion, you're sensitive to light, right? Right. They said even two days earlier than that, he couldn't even look at his cell phone because the light was too bright. And then he's out there under the bright lights yesterday with that mask on perspiring under that Phantom of the Opera mask. And he kept going. He played 36 minutes, 11 rebounds, 19 points. But more than that, Ray, it was the defensive presence that Joel Embiid creates out there. Uh stop Bam. Stopped them all the other team, the, the Heat could not go inside when he was out there. And if they if they tried to, it was usually a miss or a turnover. Uh he can guard multiple people. He intimidates. He moves so well. His timing is great. His instincts are great. Uh and he opens up room for everybody in the team. And that is my early tribute to Joel Embiid and I'll uh, I'll, I'll pass you the ball here. Well you didn't leave me a whole sorry, while. Ray. <laughs> <laughs> so Ray, what what do you think? <laughs> You agree? <laughs> yes.
4: Okay, let's move on to the Eagles.
3: <laughs> oh, well, we've done those shows at WIP. Oh, have we airs. ever?
4: Have we ever? Let's get uh, it
3: back to the Eagles.
4: No, um, no you're right. You're I you you Sorry I agree that. with Sorry. I, I didn't mean to. No, 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 no. I mean okay. you were I, and I wasn't about to interrupt you cuz you were you were on a very nice role there and everything you said was uh, was dead on. I uh, yeah, I thought he was great. I, he's clearly the difference. Uh, and, you know, it just reinforces the point that, that I've made before and felt all year. He, he's the MVP of the league. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, he's probably not going to get it now because I've read enough stories about, about it that, you know, he's probably not going to get it. But if you ever needed any more proof about who the real MVP, in terms of what really MVP means, I mean, it was on evidence there last night. I mean, it's it's just, it's just there. I mean, I... He's the MVP of the league this year, and he was certainly the MVP last night. And, um, and I agree. I mean, if you look at his offensive numbers, they you know they don't look great compared to a guy who averaged almost 30 points a game during the season. But the big difference was what he brought to you at the other end. Uh, I mean, Miami, who's a pretty dynamic offensive team, gets 79 points. And it's because, because of his presence inside. He alters every shot. Um, their, their big guy who had scored 24 and 23 in the two games in Miami was a non-factor. Uh, And even other guys that would penetrate, they had to be aware of where Embiid was. Uh, And so, you know, all those easy baskets, all those easy alley-oop hoops that they got down in Miami, all that stuff that they ran around the basket that allowed them to really control the game, they weren't getting them last night, and it was because of one guy. And, you know, and and hats off to Embiid. I mean, coming back... I wasn't at all sure we were going to see him in this series. I really wasn't. I mm-hmm. thought they were going to, it was one of those things that they were going to talk about it and talk about it. Well, maybe, you know, maybe he'll be, maybe. And, you know, if he didn't play last night and they lost, then it almost wouldn't have been no point to bring him back for the next game. I mean, last last night's game was was the game. I mean, last night's game was the game that was going to determine whether you had a series or not. And to win it, you needed him on the floor. And there he was, and he was the difference in a game that they won. Well, it was closed for three quarters, and then in the fourth quarter, they just pulled away. And, you know, Tyrese Maxey played terrific in the fourth quarter, and what a terrific young player he is. What fun it's going to be to watch uh, him. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but the key guy, and every, everybody would agree the key guy, was Embiid. Having him back made all the difference.
3: Yeah, and don't just look at the stat line. I mean, it, it, it's it's not that he scored what 18 or 19 points. It's that now Miami doesn't get the looks. And I know you and I are repeating ourselves, but, you know, now Miami has to account for Joel Embiid every time they come down, every time they're in the paint, every time they're down there. There's no easy shots with him in the game, and that's, that's a huge—that's why you score 79 points. I don't like to use the word hero in sports because it's really reserved for other aspects of life, but, I mean, he did this with a broken face, man. Yeah, yeah. And a broken hand. And you think
4: about the games in Miami, how many easy hoops did they get? I mean just oh, yeah. you know, and around the basket and they're lobbing it up and they're alley-ooping it and yep. they're slam dunking it and have been watching winning time happen. Yeah, I mean it's it was it, it was it looked it made it look ridiculously easy mm-hmm. and there was there wasn't a single easy possession for the yep.
3: Heat last night and there's not going to be as long as the big guys on the floor. You mentioned Tyrese Maxey, slow first half, th- three shots, no field goals in the first half, right. ends up with 21 points. Toronto starts to go on a run in the third quarter, and then Maxey gets the hot hand. Um, I think he hit five straight baskets, maybe. Yeah, you know, um, and you
4: know what? He's um, he has become a really good three point shooter. Yeah, which I didn't foresee. I mean, I always thought he was going to be a high energy guy, a guy with a lot of speed, a guy that would take it to the basket. I never
3: envisioned him becoming that kind of a three-point threat, but he's really gotten he's really gotten good out there. He has and he's got confidence and I mean he's got the conditioning of a young player, right? He's got the energy of a 21-year-old and it's really it's it's fun and special to watch his development. He's the one, you know, of all the guys they drafted, right? They got the lottery picks. He's what was he? The 21st pick of the draft? Yes. Right? I don't think anybody thought it was going to be somebody. He was going to be somebody special. Well, one person might have. We'll be talking to her, <laughs> we'll be talking to her shortly. Yeah, at 11. <laughs> Amy Fadul, fellow Kentucky grad. Um, and finally, let's let's get James Harden in here. Um, he could not do it alone in the first two games, clearly. He looked, you know, old and spent, and he did not have an impressive stat line yesterday, four for 11, one for seven from the field. Uh, uh, I think Tim can win for seven three-pointers. Shot's still not going. But eight rebounds, six assists, opening up for other people. If you believe in basketball plus minus, which I don't always, but he was plus 27, best in the game. So that says something. Tonight he was kind of what they needed him to be. And, Ray, it is not a easy situation in which they find themselves – uh, when you go down 0-2 in a series, you got to win four out of five. Well, right. now they still got to win three out of four. And two of those are going to be on the road. And so it is certainly not easy to repeat what they did three times. But they're in it. They're in it. It right. would have been over, and they're in it. And we got a reason to watch tomorrow night. Forget those Mother Day dinners. Mm-hmm. What time's the game tomorrow? Seven thirty, eight 8 o'clock? It's, I know it's tomorrow evening. Yeah. 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 Well, there you go.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, the history... And I know you you always push back against these trends. But, you know, you can't discount them totally. And the the Sixers have wait, never wait, Could you say the word the same way then, one more time? Trends.
3: Okay, I thought you said it with a little more disdain. No, well, perhaps I did. Trends. <laughs> no, what no, was you say it like that? Ready? Here you go. I've looked at the
4: trends. <laughs> say it right. <Ray. laughs> no. No, no, no. I can't possibly. <laughs> can't possibly do it as well as you did it. But, um, there are those that believe in them, and there are those that don't and I know you're not a big believer, but some you know um, the heat have never lost a playoff series when they've been up to 0 the sixers have never won a playoff series when they have been down o two yeah. so i mean that's that's the mountain you have to climb and it's I mean it is history, and it doesn't necessarily always translate, but it can't be discounted so the idea that the, the idea that this it is all turned around on the basis of one game is probably a stretch, but the one thing we can both agree on sitting here this morning, is we have a series now. We have a series now. And if the Sixers can find a way to win tomorrow night and send it back to Miami, then it's best of three, and then who knows.
3: Yeah. Some me trends like that count if it's the same guys and the same coaches. That's, I, I, you know, if the Sixers couldn't come back from 0-2 when it's you know, Thaddeus Young on the team and Allen Iverson, Then it's different to me than if it's the guys now, Mm -hmm. right? Was Doc Rivers coaching, or well, if Doc Rivers is never mind. I don't. I don't have a lot of faith in Doc, Doc, so so I'll buy into that. But that that's when I look at trends like they haven't done this in 37 years. Well, yeah, they had you know different owner, different general manager,
4: yeah. Fitz Dixon right. owned the team, and Gene Shue was the coach. Right, right.
3: so the trends like that tend not to mean something to me. But I hear you. Listen, I hear you. Let me get in a phone call, and then we're going to work uh, the sad state of the Phillies into this first uh, segment. Chris in the Northeast is with us. Hey, Chris.
5: Hey.
6: Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Hey. I, I, let's, let's operate with what we know, right? So we know MV, MVP finalist Joel Embiid. We know all-star Joel Embiid. We know he has a big heart, Right. Mm-hmm. Then you look at, and I agree with you both how you said you can't look at the box score of all the other intangibles that aren't calculated. Another thing that the box score doesn't doesn't tabulate or calculate for you is right across the court from him, James Harden, the kind of guy who he was five years ago he is not today. So I think I laud the heck out of Joel for doing what he's doing because now is the time. You, you have to, if you believe... You can't do any further damage if you believe that he can do the things that he we know he's capable of doing you have to throw him out there because that window of being an MVP finalist or an MVP is so small it's so minute and you have to go for it when the opportunity is there we know another thing we know Milwaukee and Boston might be the better better team when they get there if they get there but the reality is the window is so tight that if you have any bit of a shot I'm just so I'm so happy that he's back out there again doing what he can do for this team
3: yeah Shane well Clearly, thanks. You know, it it certainly changed the shape of it. What will be interesting to see tomorrow, Ray, is whether Embiid playing twice in forty eight hours has the energy that he had yesterday. Right. You know, he is coming off two injuries, or dealing with not coming off. He's dealing with two injuries. Any injury is debilitating. Pain sure. is debilitating. Sure. And he's got to feel that. And so can and he's you know,
4: and he's coming off a concussion too. Yeah which, you know, I mean, that doesn't clear overnight. So, I mean, I know he's been cleared and he's going through the protocol, but still, he's playing through a lot right now. You know, but I think he understands the magnitude of this, of these games and his role in these games. And if he's not out there, this team can't win. And if this team can't win, it's another year. He's another year closer to the end of his career without winning a championship, which is the one thing that's really driving him. So, yeah, I think I, – I just thought last night that he – you know, on on a night when you absolutely needed him to be there and to be at his best, I thought that he was. And the stat line—if you're just looking at the box score—it doesn't. If all you saw that that game was the box score, then you missed the game because it was really what he contributed was way way beyond the numbers.
3: Got that right. All right, Ray. You know, other than the Sixers, what the best news of last night was? The Phillies didn't play. Correct. Correct. And as we sit here, I think what is a four o'clock game today? That's not going to happen. No. All right, there you go, Ray. There's reason for optimism,
4: and the weather forecast is not too good for tomorrow. So, uh, what's better than a rainy Mother's Day? You might just get those Metropolitans packing their bags and leaving town, and we won't see them again for. <laughs> and best news, you won't see Max Scherzer.
3: Yeah, that's great. So the Phillies get to go on a on a Western Road swing. That's. Got good reason for optimism. Okay, we're being snarky. Let's let's talk this straight. <laughs>
4: well, well, did no, you I, see the game Thursday? Yes. I think I, a little snark is called for, don't I did, you?
3: I did see the game Thursday. Uh-huh. Uh, I got home around the seventh inning, and I said, like, oh, they're winning. I'm going to watch them put this thing away. All right, a couple questions for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there was much debate. After the game, did Joe Girardi screw up use of the bullpen by having a seven-one lead in the ninth inning and then throwing out the guy, um, you know, the, the last guy in his bullpen, mm-hmm. Norwood? Right. Did he, or, or was that? Is that the least of our issues? Uh, it's it's one of the issues.
4: I don't know if it's the least of it. I don't know if it's the biggest of it. But it's one of the issues you okay. can talk about. I know. I know. Ricky Petalico, who's who's lived that ninth inning many times over,
3: certainly he he questioned that decision. Um, so on Wednesday, the night before, uh, they had pitched Alvarado, Knebel, and Hand. Uh, so on Thursday, who do you want to you you want to try not to pitch those guys? To me, they pitched Familia in the eighth, got out of the inning with ten pitches, could have left him in, um, but they tend not to have guys pitch two innings for whatever reason baseball exists today. The guy I thought would be the smart guy to go to was Sir Anthony. Mm-hmm. I th- just think Girardi probably wanted to keep as many guys as he could fresh for the next day. It all backfires. He ends up having to use his closer, who blows the game. Um, you know what? I don't want to really go over the the drip, drip details of that slow death on Thursday night, but I'll ask you the bottom line question. Is it time to fire Joe Girardi? Ah, No, they're not going to fire him. Huh? You know that. Oh, I don't know that. Oh, really? Oh, Ray, I don't know that he makes it through May.
4: Oh, oh I thought you meant fire like like today.
3: Well, I mean, you know, let's start the manager hunt. I mean, like, are we, are we getting to that point?
4: Are we getting to that point? I guess there's two, I, I look at this as two realities. One is the conversation that you and I are having here with our own point of view. And then trying to project, is that the same conversation is that same conversation taking place in the office of John Middleton? okay or, so, in, or, so, in, or in the head of John Middleton?
3: So it's, so the, the two questions are, should they and will they? let's start with should they? Um, should they think they have a problem at, at,
4: uh, at the managers? Yeah, I, th- I think they do. okay. I think, I, they, think do. they do too. I think they do. Um, do I think that John Middleton right now is is walking that same edge?
3: No, I do. And here's why. Okay. Here's why. It's Middleton, but more than Middleton, I think it's Dombrowski. And Dave Dombrowski is a guy who came here pretty much winning everywhere he went. He won in Boston. He won in Detroit. He took the Tigers to a World Series, for God's sakes. Well, so did Girardi. I mean, Girardi has winning records. No, too. No, not with the Tigers. Girardi's with the Yankees. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. No, G- I'm saying Dombrowski has a resume of success too. Yes, but Girardi is the one who's been here longer and has not won. Dombrowski is the guy who inherited Joe Girardi. Remember when Middleton hires Girardi, he says this is the equivalent of bringing in a superstar player. They're under. That. They're under 500 under Joe Girardi. I just saw that stat, yes. I didn't realize that, but
4: they are under five hundred since he's been the manager. Right,
3: which is now, you know, 300-and-something games. Correct. It's not a small sample size anymore. No. Dombrowski, I think, was the guy who's brought in with the imperative to win. Again, he's done it in Detroit. He did it in Boston. He won with the Marlins. He wins. He's 67 years old. I don't think he's hanging around... Th- wondering if, like, yeah, well, maybe Joe Girardi will write the ship sooner or later. I don't think so. I think they spent all that money right before the season. Got the two big sluggers. Mm-hmm. They have a st- they have a starting rotation this year, which is actually pitching well. Mm-hmm. Leave the bullpen out for now. Um, they've invested a lot. The fans are restless. Uh, the manager, to me, is is asleep. I mean, you know, you, we've seen what we've seen. You saw the thing the other night where the Mets pitcher was it Lopez gets warned, and then in the ninth inning, and then proceeds to plunk Bohm and and you can see Bohm's upset, and then you see Girardi in the in the dugout picking his teeth, looking at a chart. What what's going on there? <laughs> we saw it a couple of weeks ago when um, Schwarber gets thrown out of the game, and he's furious. And Girardi's like, well, I guess I better walk out on the field. <laughs> Sounds like Tom Bigby. <laughs> uh, wake up. Wake up. Joe's done nothing this year. Nothing. And and you know, I mean, it's the oldest axiom in sports, but it's true. You can't fire the players. You fire the manager. The manager's giving you no reason not to fire him. Mm-hmm. I think that unless they turn it around quickly and good luck against the Padres and the Dodgers there unless they turn around quickly Joe ain't making it to Memorial Day wow i do and and i think i think the way i laid it out makes sense well it does uh it
4: it it does to me it does to you it probably does to the listeners um but none of it matters unless it makes sense to the owner that's and that's what all uh, it all lies yeah, this, on him.
3: Soner's big talk, you know. I'm going to do anything I can to get that damn trophy back. Oh, and, I know. And again, you hired Dombrowski. You're not in for the long haul. You hired Dombrowski because you want to win now. Well, then I'll ask you the the,
4: the obvious follow up question: Is okay? You fired Girardi. Who who's your manager?
3: Uh, here here's who it's not who is the popular people. Are we taking
4: Dusty out of the third base box and giving it to him?
3: Probably, but let me, let me, (laughs) well, he's never had a chance to do it or not. So I can't say he's going to be bad. He managed triple A, but let me, let me, the, the, the popular call now is Jim Leland because Dombrowski had Leland twice as a manager and won twice with Leland. So you're thinking like, well, Hey, he's only 77 and you know, in his fourth carton of cigarettes of the day, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> What's he doing down in Boca Del Vista? He's available? I don't know that it's him. I wouldn't be upset if it's him, but again, he's 77. That's a tough pull. Yeah, it is. Okay. Uh, you you kind of scoff at Dusty Wathan. I don't know why. I mean, he's a guy who's kind of a, been a minor league manager, kind of been groomed for this. I can't tell you a whole lot about him, but he's he seems like he's been the heir apparent or the other name. That I think could be the guy is their young genius in training now, the assistant general manager Sam Fold, who you move out of that office and put him on the field. Really? Yeah. I mean, I know those names don't overwhelm you, but Walter Alston is not available, right? <laughs> I mean, it, that's that's the best you're going to give me. You got to. Well, t- how do you know he's not
4: good? Just because your first time that he is. You got a team team right now that you've you've spent a fortune to put on the field. Yeah. Okay.
3: And a manager who's asleep at the
4: wheel. I'm not going to argue that part of it, but you built a team this year with the idea that I guarantee you when they put this team together and they went down to Clearwater, the expectation was, oh boy, oh man, we are loaded. We're ready to go. And to be frank, the schedule in April was very favorable. Oh, no doubt. I said that to you when the, the Rangers said, and the Astros, the, all these, and
3: yeah, all these Not chump the Astros, teams the, lined the Rangers up. And the uh the who did they play the first weekend? Athletics. Athletics. Thank you. Yeah,
4: they got the A's. They got the they got the Rangers. Yeah, you know they got they got Miami in there. They got Colorado. I think all yeah. these chump teams lined up. Yeah, they got the Mets without Degrom. Yep. I mean, I, I think one of the I think I even said to you on the show Rob, one of the things I think bodes well for this team this year. Is the fact that unlike some recent years, they're they're poised, I think, to get off to a good start.
3: Sure, fifteen and ten end of April, no
4: question and, about it. And then they fall on their face. Yes, and,
3: and now they're going into May, which is a, which is going to be a tough. You're month. speaking brilliance, and so ergo, as my math teacher used to say, yeah. But, there we go. See you, Joe Girardi. So now Take you're a going, hike. I don't know. I don't think you... I, you know, you're, you,
4: If you're going to do that... What are you
3: waiting to see from
4: Jolton Joe? Well, you got to give me something better than Dusty
3: Woffin. Come on. Sam Fold, baby.
4: <laughs> Jeez. That's the best you got?
3: I don't know the best I got. If the, best the best I got is if, not Joe Girardi. If, if that's hey. the best you got, I'm not changing. Okay? I, I, I would... You and I have seen young men, and Fold is a young guy, energetic guy. I don't know him. I interviewed him exactly once in my life. And he's another one of these like really bright, young, you know, Ivy League. I don't know if he's Ivy League, but Ivy League-ish, right? He's like a Reuben Amaro kind of guy. Yeah. Hey, maybe Reuben. Don't think so. <laughs> he Take it. <laughs> Hold on. I do have Charlie Manuel on my cell phone. There you go. He's in my contacts. Should we get him? <laughs> hey, give him a call. I don't know. Hold on. Uh, Jack Fritz. Bruce Bochy's only 67. Bruce Bochy. That is a name. There you go. That's not a bad name. I've given you a half a dozen good names. Young, old, experienced, fresh. What do you want from me? Bochy I'd be interested in. All right. There you go. Now you're talking. That's Jack Fritz. But but pulling in some guy that's never
4: managed the big league level and handing him a team that you expect to go to the playoffs and maybe win a World Series. He managed
3: these guys in AAA. He got the best out of Reese Hoskins. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Great. All right, can we? I want to move it back a step, Ray. did Right now, you are. You had the button is in your hand, right? And the button says "Fire Girardi," and I'll even give you the caveat: "Fire Girardi by Memorial Day." If. Are you ready to press that button?
7: No. All right. No. Ah, oh,
3: Ray, 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 I want to. I. I just don't. I just don't think you're going to do going to give it. Give us to August
4: here. Um, Let's just let's just see. Let's just see what happens to me. Look, I I'm as I'm as annoyed and frustrated with the way they're playing right now as you are. And I'm and I have not been I've certainly been underwhelmed by the performance of the manager since he's been here. I will grant you all of that. Yeah. But I'm not ready. I'm not ready to pull the plug on this guy at this point in the season unless I feel like I'm I'm going to somebody that I
3: that has a track record and I th- I think can come in and do a better job. I am not a guy who often calls for this. I'm pretty slow on this because I realize the ramifications. Not that my vote counts, but when you're calling for somebody's job, you're calling for somebody's career. And I and I don't take that lightly. I really don't often do that as you know. You haven't heard me do that a lot. No. I'm giving him a week. If they don't turn this around in a week, the, the Mets don't lose under Buck Wall. No they don't. This season's going to be gone by the, you know, the time they open the pools. Oh, they could
4: be they could be 12 games out by Memorial Day.
3: Yeah, and then that place is going to be empty.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Hey John Middleton, you want you want a ghost town again? 215-592-9494. I just gave myself a paper cut. <laughs> See? See what happens? Uh, I got to tough it out like Embiid. bead. <laughs> I literally just did. Uh, Amy Fadul is going to join us at 11 to Talk Sixers. Tell us your story, Ray. Set that one up, if you would. Tell us your story is going to be um, a really
4: good one. Bill Clement, who um, was a member of the Flyers back-to-back Stanley Cup teams um, and a guy who had an interesting life. He's become an author. He's become an actor. and He became really one of the best hockey analysts on television. His partnership with Doc Emmerich, we got to enjoy it here in Philadelphia for a good long time. So Bill Clement will be with us, and if – if you kind of want to try and remember the days when hockey actually mattered in this town and people actually got excited about the Philadelphia Flyers, hang in there because Bill Clement will tell we'll us all about it. We'll give
3: you 45 minutes of that. Ray Dinger and Glenn Mack now. Hey, just like our team hitting a Grand Slam, you can score big with United Tire's Memorial Day sale. Right now, visit your local United Tire and walk off with up to $200 in savings on all your favorite brands like Michelin, Goodyear, Continental, and more. Plus, United Tire has teamed up with United Way is matching donations dollar for dollar to help aid millions of displaced Ukrainians. Score big this Memorial Day and help those in need with United Tire. Remember, don't drive alone, drive
0: United. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours
1: They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.
3: Right, engine, Glenn Mack. Now, we'll get to the calls in just a moment. As Ray says, he sees people up there rallying to Joe Girardi's defense. Well, they would be wrong. All right, Ray, it is time for our weekly This Week in Philadelphia sports history. Brought to you by Shibe Sports. We're going to give away a $50 gift card today. Uh, Shibe Sports, where there's a story in every stitch, check out their throwback apparel at their center city location or scheibsports.com. This is This is a fun one for me. And we're going to tie the Scheib giveaway to this theme. Okay. And as always, Kyle Quinn gets to give out the prize. Kyle, mm-hmm. you give out more prizes on this station than Angelo Cataldi. Yeah. I mean, look at me. I'm, uh, I'm, the, I'm the prize man around here. You, you are. You're Monty Hall. Uh, okay. Ray, it was 16, I had it wrong. It was, no, it was 17 years ago, excuse me, this weekend, that Aaron Rowand playing for the Philadelphia Phillies in right field. Well, I'll just set it up. A ball is hit to deep right, and then. Driven to deep center field. Rowan back. Are you kidding me? Oh, what a catch.
2: What a great, great, perhaps game-saving catch by Aaron Rowan. An incredible play by Rowan, who will run into a brick wall to try to
3: help his team win, and he did. By the way, I was already wrong. He was playing yeah, center field. not centerfield. right in that's, that's what I was going to say. It's right field. He's, no, he's in center field. He's in center field. Yes, 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 yes. Shame on me. Um, great call by Harry. Yes, it was. Great catch by Rowan. And he does. He busts up his face. He catches the ball, what, two feet from the fence. Momentum carries him right into it. This is before they padded it. This was actually the reason they decided to pad the thing. And he runs right into the... the the whatever the metal post the bar there right? yeah the bar yeah crushes his face uh a day later or so they well i'm going to play you two things this is going to be uh our pal larry anderson talking about it and this is going to be aaron rowand explaining his motivation well, i don't
8: care if you're a mets fan
7: or a phillies fan you gotta be on your feet for a play like that for who
4: my
8: teammates
3: for what to win?
8: Uh, how did you know, he know that?
3: That's what it's about. How did he know for who, for what? <laughs> he wasn't here during the Ricky Waters thing. How did he know that? Well, that traveled. I guess. Uh, and we loved him for it, right? Oh, yeah. I would buy Aaron Rowan a drink today if I ran across him and thank him for that play. Mm-hmm. So it got me thinking. Uh, I say Aaron Rowan to you. I assume that's what you think. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. So I want our giveaway today to be a name of somebody in Philadelphia sports history that you just associate with one moment. The name comes up, and we all think of the same thing. Okay? (laughs) Okay. Now, it's tricky because... There are some people who are great players who had many great moments. Well, right. like If I say Mike Schmidt, right, s- somebody's going to say, uh, "Well, that 500th home run against Don Robinson and him kind of dancing around the field." No, Mike Schmidt had so many amazing moments that it's not that way. Right. Chase Utley. Well, you know that play in the World Series where he fakes the throw to first and throws it to home. On the other hand, World Bleeping Champions. Right. And by the way, this doesn't have to be a play; it's just a moment. Um. So that's it. And if you want to throw one out to start, I know I didn't give you a whole lot of lead time on this. But- oh, there's one that jumps immediately All to my mind. All right, good. What do you got? Because um, it's even better when
4: it's a guy whose career is really otherwise not particularly noteworthy, but has a moment that's incredible. And that's exactly what you're looking for here, right? Oh, To, to me, the first one that came to my mind is J.J. Daniel. Oh, yeah. Had the goal. The J.J. Daniel goal against, Go against Edmonton. Edmonton. Yeah. I mean, one of the probably elicited the biggest cheer, the biggest roar that I ever heard in the spectrum. I mean, I really thought the roof was going to come off for a second time. Game six, tie
3: game late, Yeah, and he scores the game winner. Yep. And by the way, a defenseman who didn't exactly score too often. No.
4: And, you know, it was was nobody's all-star. And he's supposed to be coming off the ice. There there, there was a bad line change, so he's still out there. The puck just sort of finds its way to him, and he slaps it, (laughs) Past the Hall of Fame goalie Grant Fuhr and the Flyers take it to seven games against a great Edmonton team. That's J.J. Daniels to me. One. That's a good one. You want to throw one in here? I don't want to steal
3: everybody's yeah. good ones, but no, uh,
1: I just I kind of wanted to go the other direction with this—an infamous moment and an infamous player. How about Ben Simmons in the non-dunk? Yeah, Ben Simmons the pass. Yeah, I that mean,
3: is the play we'll always remember Ben yeah. Simmons for. Oh yeah, yeah, it has been it has been immortalized, memorialized, posterized, everything. Yeah, Ben Simmons passing up the shot. That's good. All right, so whoever gives us the best moment like that, you just associate a guy with that one moment, mm-hmm. the Aaron Rowand tribute today.
4: Good. That's a very good one.
3: Rowand only played two years here. Right. He was good. He His was second good. year, he he had like an OPS of 880. Yeah. He, he was really good. He was, 2007, he was in center field and Victorino was in right. Mm-hmm. And then 2008, he moved, Where's he go, to Chicago, I think, yeah. the White Sox? Mm-hmm. And Victorino takes over center, and Worth isn't right. Right. Yeah, he, he kind of missed out on all the fun.
4: Yeah, he did. Yeah. But he certainly left his mark
3: here. He did. He did. All right, so add that to your conversation. Alan in Pittsburgh wants to talk about the Sixers. Hey, Alan. Hey,
2: good morning, gentlemen. Hey, <clears throat> Ray, I've been reading you or listening to you, it feels like, for about 40 years, and you are an icon Glenn, you're okay, too. So I want to wish you guys a, a good morning. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I was thinking last night, the phantom of the process is our savior. But if JoJo is our Batman, Tyrese Maxi is officially our Robin. So I was thinking about the game last night. In your opinion, what was the play that was the dagger, the one where you knew the game was over now?
3: You're talking about the Maxi three-pointer?
2: Well, the Maxi three pointer was a that, good one. I think,
4: I think the one where he saved it and kept it in bounds. Oh,
2: there you go. That was good. So for me, I knew the game was over when JoJo got fouled by Adebayo and hit that shot from the free throw line. But let's not lose track of what happened just preceding that that got us the possession. Maxi, holy cow, one of the most acrobatic plays, goes back and gets this skill, diving out of bounds, heaves it over his head to half court where Harden gets it and gets it uh jojo i mean i'm so excited about maxi i love jojo he's my favorite player but maxi is quickly becoming musty tv for me oh I yeah love this guy oh and, and i, I and, and i
3: think i think tyrese maxi is gonna well i guess not against Embiid, but he's got to be one of the two or three most popular players in i want to share my moment oh, yeah, with you if, sure. if i may Max. yeah Can go I for it if, you bet
2: okay so this player had one of the most nondescript careers and when an MVP caliber player went down for the season, this guy came in and I think everybody thought the season was over. But he got to the Super Bowl and they called a timeout. And he looked at his coach and said, you want Philly Philly? And guess what happened? He scored a touchdown. He out the GOAT. He got us our Super Bowl. Nick Foles had the moment of my lifetime and he'll never buy another drink in this town. I thought as far I as thought about TV. that one. You
3: got I, that right. All right. So I thought about that one, right? Mm-hmm. And it is the best play in Philadelphia sports, maybe probably Philadelphia sports history, right? If you're if who wrote that book? Reuben and uh, Mark Eckel wrote that book. Yeah, yeah. Years ago, before uh, this. Yeah, the greatest moments in Eagles history. Yeah, right? greatest plays. Yeah, right. And this would be number one now. I oh don't, yeah. I don't oh. know what was, but oh, this yeah. would be. Um, But when you say Nick Foles, do you remember it with the singular thing or does Nick Foles have too much of a resume in this town that you're going to tie it to one? A question for Kyle Quinn. Fortunately, he's got a few hours to think about. That's right. right. Mm -hmm. There you go. It's a good one. 215-592-9494. Jeff and Dan hang in there. Dan, you definitely hang in there because I'm going to hear your foolish Joe Girardi comment in the next segment. I promise you that. Right in your Glenn Mac now. Hey, are you tired of dealing with your old drafty windows and doors in your house? Maybe it's time you finally go Gaida. The great people at Guida Door and Window will help make your window and door replacement project more affordable with their buy one, get one half off sale. For every door or window you buy, you get a second one at 50% off. And you can mix and match the savings to suit your own needs. Buy an entry door, get half off a storm door. Buy a patio door, get 50% off a window. If you need to replace all the windows and doors in your house, well, you can save 50% off on half your project. The more you need, the more you save. Plus, Guida is making it easier for you to afford your project with no money down and interest-free financing for up to 18 months. Act now. Offers for a limited time only. Restrictions apply. For full details, call Guida today. Schedule a free, no-obligation in-home estimate at one 877 go Or visit them at goguida.com. That's go, G-U-I-D-A dot com. Ray Danger, Glenn Mack, now on a rainy Saturday, man. I parked two blocks away from here, and I got to tell you, by the time I got here, my pants are soaked through, my shoes are soaked. Yeah, you well, take a longer walk than I yeah, did.
4: Yeah, you saw me.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I feel I like I'm like w- to bring a change of clothes. Yeah, I feel
4: like I walked through the surf coming over here today. Yeah. Well,
3: if if you want, when we leave, again, my car's closer. If it's still raining, I'll be happy to drive you home. I might take you up on All that. Right, well, there you go. Uh, I'm just going to jump the order. Jeff, I'll get you next, but I I don't want to lose this Dan from Pottstown, who is arguing that Joe Girardi should never be fired, and he's like the greatest manager in the history of baseball. Or I I may have that wrong, Dan. Hi, Dan. Hello. Hey. You put words in my mouth there, Glenn. Good
9: morning. Indeed I did. Uh, How are you? I'm okay. You know, I sort of feel and see see how you feel, Glenn. And you know what? I felt that way about Gabe Kapler, too. And we all know what happened with him. And uh, in jordy's defense, he had no players the first season and a half he was here. Or very few. I mean, yeah, they had the MVP of the league. The bullpen was terrible. The pit they had a, We they signed Wheeler. Aaron Nola has been up and down. And they're not where we all would want them to be. I mean, geez, they they, they had the big uh, off-season acquisitions. And Schwarbers had has been hitting home runs, but not for average. They had no center fielder. But in my mind, I would give Girardi, Girardi until all-star break. It's a long season. The Atlanta Braves had a losing record last year in the beginning of the season and won the World Series. I would give him that long, not just through May, to the all-star break to turn things around. If that doesn't happen, then no. try here's here's well, the here's saying, I,
3: I hear you. Here's my problem with that. So we're talking a difference of about five weeks, right?
5: Uh, probably.
3: Here's my diff- Here's my problem with that. At that point, if Buck Showalter and the Mets keep winning, it's not going to matter.
9: No, unless 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 you have a unless you get a wild card.
3: Well, the way they're playing now, I mean, oh, you know, yeah. if they if they don't yeah. turn it around, right. that that's at that point you're more than halfway through the season, right, yeah, Ray? You are. Yeah, yeah. If they're more than halfway through the season and they're playing like this,
9: well, there's there's no rest dead. of the season. Right, right. So it's either, so you come to All Star break, and if they're getting close to, I think, say, five games over five hundred, maybe add a couple pieces in the bullpen. Maybe that helps them get. That's just my, my opinion. All right, I want you, want you want to, do to do me a favor, Dan.
3: Here's the deal: I want you to call Ray and I, Ray and me, every uh, every weekend, and I want <laughs> and we're going to do the the Girardi barometer check in with Dan.
9: <laughs> that sounds good.
3: I uh, will see if if I'm getting warmer and you're getting <laughs> colder, and where we stand, and where Ray is. And we'll kind of have it as a week to week thing I,
9: I don't get me wrong there uh uh Glen I'm been freaking out a little bit too because everybody because the whole attitude of well oh, this is a marathon, we have a long time to get there or, or, or act together and yeah the, and 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 the top yeah the metro play fantastic, oh my gosh he can't so so the the division's going to be a tough nut. Mm-hmm. I mean, to make the playoffs as a wild-card team would be a step in the right direction. That's all I'm saying.
3: Yeah, well, to hit 500 would be. Uh, give us the moment that you will always associate with a Philadelphia sports figure, or that the moment yep. for which... There the, you the, go. I'll I give you one name.
9: I'll give you his nickname, and then you might remember what he, what he's remembered for. Daryl Dawkins' Chocolate Thunder.
4: Oh, yeah, smashing the backboard.
9: Oh, yes, right. I do. you remember. That's pretty good. <laughs> and And he's not... Been known for anything else,
3: basically. That's that's not bad. That's a good one, Dan. We'll see if our young producer, Kyle Quinn, has that in his thing. Well, the other thing that I remember Daryl Dawkins for, and it might be because I read it in a fine book of memoirs by Ray Dinger called Mm. Last Read. (laughs) I never remember the name of your book. The most recent one. Yeah, most recent. It's called Finished Business. Finished Business, exactly what I said. Right. was about the Daryl Dawkins ripping apart the um, men's room Mm. stall. Yes, the uh the bathroom in the
4: Sixers locker room. The after he had been ejected from the game for uh squaring off with uh, Maurice Lucas in the ah, NBA finals.
3: Right, hey, that was basketball.
4: Well, and the only, you know, Daryl took a big swing, but he he missed Mo Lucas and he hit Doug Collins. <laughs> Yeah, but he did damage to that stall. And then he got ejected, and then he was so mad he, because he felt like his teammates didn't stick up for him. And so he was furious about being thrown out. He was furious about the fact that he didn't think his teammates had his back. So he goes up the tunnel, and he goes into the locker room at the old Spectrum then and proceeds to just dismantle the bathroom in the Sixers locker room. I had never seen it. It's...
3: I can't convey to you what that looked like. When See, this is down. where unfortunately cell phones didn't exist at the time. Yeah, because there's no photographic evidence of it, and now there would be.
4: You know what? You know, everybody knows what a stall looks like in a men's room. Okay, the stall around the ba- around the toilet. Daryl had ripped it out of ripped it out of the wall and bent it in half. Yeah, I mean that's how strong this guy was. Yeah, yeah. I mean we all knew he was like scary strong because yeah. we had seen him shatter the backboard and stuff like that. Um, but to see what he did, I mean, he took the stall and literally bent it in half.
3: Yeah. By the way, Moan Lucas, no slouch himself.
4: Oh no, no. If that had uh, if that had actually gone down, if that fight had actually taken place, I it would have been pretty scary. Thank thank goodness it didn't. Yeah. But it also turned the series around. The Sixers were up. were <laughs> The Sixers were running away with the series, and that totally changed the momentum. And uh, the Trailblazers went on to win
3: the next four. Yes, that too. Bad memories. Yeah, not good. Sean in Wilmington's with us. Hey, Sean.
10: Hey, good morning. How you guys doing this morning?
4: Hi,
3: Sean.
10: Hey, Rick. How you doing? Hey, uh, uh, I want to take my thing off the board real quick. Fourth and twenty-six. Oh, Freddie Mitchell. Sure,
3: that's another good one. A guy who spent a lot of time doing nothing in this town.
10: Right, but it, when you mention his name, or you mention Fourth of Twenty Six, that everybody will say Freddie Mitchell. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, that is that. That's a very good one. By the way, blocks me on Twitter for reasons I don't know. Freddie does. Yeah. <laughs> well, I probably have been critical. I see him around town from time to time. He's oh, still he's great. here. I know. I see him at a golf tournament once a yeah. year, and he he avoids eye contact. <laughs> and, and Wait, can about- I give you my favorite Freddie Mitchell moment? I, and I'm sorry, and and well, I definitely want to hear the other thing. So, Freddie is a player in town, and this is after, I think, his rookie year, which he was a first-round pick and was really unproductive. Mm -hmm. And so, Steve Fredericks, God bless him, I miss Steve Fredericks, is doing a show on a weekend afternoon, and Steve's criticizing Freddie. Okay. Okay. (laughs) You know, I do Steve Fredericks, it sounds like John Wayne. You take a guy in the first round, and what does he give you? two touchdowns it's bad steve frederick's i apologize anyway um freddie calls and he gets into an argument with steve (laughs) (laughs) and freddie says to steve how many touchdowns actually it was one freddie says to steve mitchell how many touchdowns did you catch last year steve and steve goes one less than you (laughs) anyway that's it go ahead
10: yeah uh and uh, he was guess what a caller called last night. I don't know if he was being facetious or not, but he got they hung up on him. He swore the Sixers won because Freddie Mitchell was in the stands.
3: <laughs> yeah, I I think not. Yeah. More, more likely
4: they more likely they won because Embiid was there. But uh, right. but that maybe that's just me.
3: Yeah, yeah. they hung off on
10: it. I, I I took his defense like I got, I think he was being facetious. Sure. Right, you know what I mean? Sure. But anyway, so I wanted to, uh. They were talking about the Phillies and uh, worried about all these doubleheaders they're going to have against the Mets because of, because of these rains. And I'm like, well, don't we still play seven innings? All we need is seven good innings.
3: <laughs> Wait, no. Did they They played nine this year, don't they? They kept the phantom runner, but they play nine innings. Right. Yeah. No, oh, they, they did. I yeah, they, they did should. away with the seven innings, but they kept the phantom runner. Ray, which of those rules do you hate more? The phantom runner or the seven-inning double? No, I hate them equally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i loathe them both <laughs> yeah i know you do uh I hate, I hate what they've done to the game it
4: makes it hard for me to watch
3: yeah i know i know i know 215-592-9494 stick around we got a lot more coming up amy fedul from nbc sports philadelphia will join us next a little sixers chatter as they stay alive last night ray and glenn on 94 wip Talked about just getting more aggressive, more physical defensively. Harris comes up with a steal right on cue, in for two. The final minutes of game three. Axie kicks Green, gets
5: the roll, Danny Green.
3: Uh, Danny Green, Ray. Well, you know what? We'll talk. Let's talk to Amy Fadul, our friend from NBC Sports Philadelphia. Watched Amy. Host game uh, doing a great job uh, last night. Amy, always a pleasure to talk to you.
11: Always good to be with you, Glenn and Ray.
3: Let us start with the easy and the obvious. Tell us the difference that was created by Joel Embiid when we learned yesterday afternoon, really, that Joel mm-hmm. Embiid was going to be able to play.
11: I mean, obviously, just on uh, the offense, whether he gives you any points at all? It's really about his presence, and he even said that after the game. You know, he was hoping he knew he was going to be a step slow. He hadn't done really any real meaningful basketball activities in over a week at that point. But you know, you're thinking his presence as a decoy and just draw the defenders in and open up some of those perimeter shots. I mean, we all know how bad the Sixers had shot from the perimeter in the first two games. 14 threes combined. That's usually a game's worth for them, and they had 16 last night. So. Just better looks, um, more open looks, less contested shots was a real big difference. But defensively, that's where he really shined. And that's where he, that's his calling card. That's the one thing that I think separates him from a lot of other centers out there. When you talk about really good centers and really good players, his defense, his defensive effort. Bam Adebayo had been smoking the Sixers. So he had nine points last night. Right there, that's all you really needed to know defensively his presence there in that low post you watch on a couple of clips the guys didn't even think about by about the second or third quarter even driving in because they knew that it was it was going to either result in a turnover or a a very heavily contested shot regardless of of his health status and beads just being there in that area and being that big body was a huge difference maker
4: no no question amy absolutely you're absolutely right and you know, the, the, I was saying to Glenn in the first hour that, uh, you know, if, if all you saw of the game was the box score, that didn't mm-hmm. begin to tell you anything mm-hmm. about the impact that he had on that game. I mean, it was profound. But my, my concern, and I wonder how you feel about this, is how does he bounce back in the next game? Because, that, I mean, he played a lot, and he played hard, mm-hmm. uh, and he's been out for a while. Um, do you think he's going to have trouble summoning up that same kind of energy tomorrow? Are you a little, a little worried that he might not have quite as much in the tank tomorrow?
11: Yeah, I mean, that's such an interesting question because obviously just the adrenaline of getting back on the court for a playoff game when you're down 0-2 is a huge boost. Just physically walking into that arena and feeling the energy, that gives him something. But I do think for him it's all about rhythm and I think actually playing even as hard as he played. And we saw him take some shots. There was that one point at the end, near the end of the game where he actually had to take the mask off when he was laying down. He had taken a shot right to the face, and you're thinking, "Oh gosh!" But he got back up. And he stayed in the game until you know, two minutes to go, and they took everybody out. So he played 36 minutes. And I think ideally, if you ask the staff what they wanted, that was probably in the range they wanted, probably in the 35, 36 minute range. But I think for him, and one thing I saw in the regular season was you know, this is a guy that used to have load management and used to take games off and have to take games off. He didn't do that this year. There was no load management in actuality, and he played so much better. So I think for him, being back in the game and being in that rhythm is actually helpful. Now, his body reacting to it, I'll be interested to, to see how he feels because he said he didn't feel good. He said it was, it was painful to be out there, and you know, he was struggling at first. But it did get better for him as the game went on. So I'm hoping that continues to carry over. Maybe he can get some light work in, obviously, today. Um, like shoot around, not a full practice, but something at least to kind of keep that momentum going. Because I think for him, staying in that game kind of rhythm helps him. He gets better as the game goes on and as the games go on.
3: I just uh, saw a statistic, uh, and it's obviously a small sample size, but in the playoffs this year with Embiid, the Sixers average 109 points per game, give up 100. Without Embiid, they average 97 and give up 113. I mean, it, 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 it is Remarkable. the whole thing. I was, I got to be honest, I was amazed he played that many minutes. Um, I thought, you know, first game back and they had said that he was experiencing concussion syndromes even the day before. He couldn't look mm-hmm. at his cell phone because of the lights. I thought, you know, he's going to play maybe 25, 28 minutes and he just kept going and so I mean, I'm kind of repeating what you said, but his stamina tomorrow to me will be really telling. Can he do it two out of three days?
11: Yeah, I mean, this is a guy, and we talked with Mark Jackson, who obviously, you know, as a player can can relate to the fact that a big man gets out of shape quicker. They get out of the game conditioning quicker. So to yours and Ray's point, I mean, the, the worry is can he keep it up for as long as he needs to? Because let's face it, no lead is safe right now. For this team, we've seen them have these build, build these big leads, and well, they're never really. I mean, I guess they did build a, a decent sized lead down in Miami, but certainly remember from the Raptor series, and they, and they escape, and we don't have to go back to how many they blew in the regular season. So, you know, the worry is: is it enough? Is the the stamina enough? Is the a crowd enough? Is the atmosphere and the environment enough to pull him through? And I think the answer is yes. I mean, if anything showed you, this guy is the ultimate competitor right now. I think all the naysayers who isn't national, it's not really rough here, they would call him soft and, and injury prone and, and he doesn't play hard or he doesn't play the right way. Like I think that's all gone out the window. You see what he's done and see what he's doing, he's literally putting this team on his back and he's saying, I, I want to win. I'm going to prove it. and I'm going to show you. But the, the stamina is, is a concern because you need him in the fourth quarter. There's no doubt about that.
4: You know... Amy, I'm going to go right into your wheelhouse here.
6: <laughs> you beat me to it, right?
4: I'm, I'm going to go right into your wheelhouse here, and I'm going to talk about Tyrese Maxey because you know I, I know how you feel about him being a being a Kentucky Wildcat yourself. But but really, I mean, his development, his emergence this year for a young player, um, the 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 confidence that he plays with, the mm-hmm. um, you know the, just the, the 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 aggressiveness, everything about him, and uh, it's I mean, you just you just watch this kid growing before our eyes, seemingly night after night, and, you know, last night he has a he has a donut in the first half, mm-hmm. and then in the second half he comes back and he scores <laughs> 20. It's just it's just amazing when you see um, how this kid has come on, and, you know, one of the questions was knowing that he had a bigger role and there was going to be more expected of him in this postseason, you know, how would he respond to that kind of pressure? And the fact of the matter is he's responded beautifully. It,
11: it's, it's truly remarkable, you know, we've, we've discussed it, I know, with you guys before, but you see where he was last year to this year. Let's just look at the regular season, right? I mean, this was a guy that was, you know, struggling to score at times last year, and then he turns into what we saw during the regular season. He averaged, you know, 17 and a half points and had these real great flashes where he carried the team at times. Now he's up that in the playoffs. He's averaging over 22 and a half points. And you mentioned it, Ray. Struggled, really struggled. 0 for 3. You know, didn't take a lot of shots. Couldn't get a lot of good looks couldn't do his usual flair on the first half. And he just said to himself and then his teammates said to him and, and Doc Rivers said to him, like, we need you to, to be you. And he said afterwards, like, it was, you know, I want the big guys back and I want to make sure that, you know, I find my way with him. And so he, he had that moment of, like, tentativeness, I guess. And then at halftime he realized, no, 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 I need to be myself. I need to play my game and I need to be aggressive. And when he turned on the switch, I mean, he went five for five from mm-hmm. three. Are you kidding me? That was the knock on this guy. When people in the national media, they look, oh, how did, how did he end up at the Sixers at 21? It's because they thought he was a poor three point shooter. And to your point about rising to the challenge, all the big games that Kentucky played, when they played like this national type of they all, a lot of them are national, but these big stage, where they played like a Michigan State on, you know, like a football arena stage, like a Final Four type stage, he really shined in those. So the benefit of him not playing in the NCAA tournament, was that the, he fell to the Sixers at 21, because I think he would have also taken that stage and showed what he can do. He really does truly rise to the moment. He knows what his team needs. He doesn't show good. He doesn't, like, do too much. It's not like he's a guy up there chucking up shots just to chuck them up. He really looks for his opportunities, and he knows if there's a small lane, I'm the fastest guy on the court, and I can go right by whoever's standing in it or near it. That's a
3: great point about not playing in the tournament. And right. Bigger. I, I had not thought about that, but there – I'm sure it broke your heart that year, but it's worked, that was, that worked out 15. for <laughs> us. Yeah, uh, James Harden did not show up much uh, impressively in the stat box yesterday, four for eleven. But I thought he had a pretty good game. Maybe it's just because mm-hmm. the guys around him had a pretty good game. But he distributed. He was part of it. What's your sense yeah. on his game
1: yesterday?
11: Yeah, you know, I'm not a big believer in plus-minus being a huge indicator of of a player's you know impact on the game, but it is an indicator especially when the number's pretty big. And you look at James Harden's plus minus, plus 27. That, to me, says something. That, to me, says when that guy's on the court, his team's doing good things. They're a plus 27, right? They're plus 27 points. So that's how that goes. I think that tells me a little bit of how. Like, the eye test told you that he was involved. His presence out there, like Embiid, is always going to be important because of what he does. He did draw a lot of fouls. He did get some of those calls that he hadn't been getting, which was nice to see. So hopefully that can continue. But I think for him, it's about the offense with he and Embiid is such a much more, and defense, but offense especially, is a much more well-oiled machine. It just runs better. The pieces work better. Guys are able to play they, they want to play. Maxi can do what he needs to do. Look at Danny Green. You guys were just talking about talk about out of cold storage. The guy was, had two three-pointers in the first two games, and he comes out, now he has one off the Sixers' playoff record, which is just remarkable. Seven threes. He couldn't miss. It was... Exactly what the Sixers needed at times because you know, let's face it, you know the Heat are a good shooting team. A role reversal from the perimeter in that regard. That's James Harden. James Harden playing how he can with Embiid and all the pieces where they should be gives the Sixers that 45 percent plus three point shooting, not the 23, 26, 17 percent that we've seen before.
4: Um, to that to that same point, Amy, can how far do you think this team? Can go um, with Harden shooting that way from three. I mean, right now, right now from three over the last, well, over the postseason and then I think the last ten games of the regular season is actually shooting below the league average from three. How far can they go if he doesn't pick that up?
11: Yeah, I mean, obviously you want him to be able to, to get the buckets His three point shooting, he's usually just above league average. So let's face it, you know, he's not like a forty percent three point shooter, but you would like for him to be in that thirty seven percent range. That's a decent. Pretty good three point shooter, and to see that he's fallen off, it's been a struggle. You know, his kind of his razzle dazzle moves, where you know he dribbles and dribbles and then step back. It doesn't always work, so that's why he's trying to find a little bit more creative ways, I think, to score. and And we saw him drive in and didn't get those those foul calls a lot, but they seem those shots the drive in seem to be falling. So I think he's had to adjust his game a little bit. But to your question, as far as how can they, how far can they go, it just it almost is like a secondary question to. Who else can pick him up? Because he's not going to be the 38 percent a three-point shooter anymore. If he is a thirty-three percenter, you you figure okay, he makes three out of ten, three out of nine, four out of twelve from three. I mean, for, from the field, and then you're looking okay. What can we get from everybody else? Danny Green was a huge boost. Obviously, George Man hit, hit a couple. That's where it really lies. Because I think for for them to get past this team which I think realistically, it's so disappointing they couldn't win one of those games down in Miami because it's obviously a whole, totally different series, and now I think it is a totally different series. But you're looking at the next round, and you would see the Celtics or the Bucs, two very formidable opponents that play very physical, punishing defense and are excellent perimeter defenders. And my, question, my answer to you then is if James Harden doesn't shoot better from the perimeter and they have to face one of those elite perimeter defender teams, they wouldn't get past
3: them. All right. Well, let us see what they are able to do tomorrow night in Game yes. Four with a chance to even it up. You guys doing post game tomorrow, Pre game, post game? Sure what are, are you doing?
11: So, so seven we'll be on uh, NBC Sports Philadelphia. Hopefully, um, after a Phillies win, we'll see. Uh, fingers crossed on that regard. But so seven thirty pregame, Pray and then for as rain. soon as the game ends, it's just like our Eagles post game. We don't have to wait for anybody to sign off. We just start. Nice. Um, and we you know, usually have a couple of uh, you know key talking points, and then we hear from all the players. And so we bring you Doc Rivers, Joel B, James Harden, Tyrese Maxey, all the guys right after the game. So, yeah, pre- and post-game on NBC Sports Philadelphia tomorrow starting at 730.
3: And you are very adept at multitasking during that show, I will
11: say. <laughs> you, you know this from our text exchange. <laughs> I,
3: indeed I do. I, I'm watching her on TV thinking like, you know what, we ought to get her as a guest tomorrow. I'll text her, see if she gets back to me after the show. Three seconds later, she's having a conversation. It's like, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, that was impressive. Anyway, uh, always a pleasure. We we'll look forward it's to watching. Always you good
11: tomorrow. to talk to you guys. Have a great one. All right, Josh, all right,
3: Amy. There you go, Amy Fadul. Good stuff.
4: <laughs> she's really, I really like her. Um, well, working at NBC Sports Philadelphia has been has been great fun for me. And uh, and one of one of the things that's great fun about it is. Is the people I'm working with, and um, and she is right at
3: the top of the list. She is really, really good. Yeah, class act. Hey, by the way, I just I'm going to diverge for one second because she brought up plus minus and judging James Harden. And mm-hmm. Do you trust it as a stat? And it's the same thing with hockey, where it really is more frequently used as an indicator stat. Right. You know what I learned yesterday? What's that? Flyers? So Joel Farabee um, had it in his contract. Who and I ought to look up his stats. I think he had like 12 goals and 40 points. Kyle, do me a favor, get me Joel Farabee's stats, okay? Uh, Joel Farabee got a bonus, a performance bonus from the Flyers because his contract said that if he was in the top three among forwards on the team in plus-minus, he would get a bonus. And so he had – what was it? What it was 17, it? Goals. it yeah, 17, 17 goals. Yes, 17 goals. 17 was, assists. Okay. Minus
1: 11, in his plus plus-minus.
3: Yeah. So he's minus 11, and he got a plus-minus bonus. <laughs> Which, by the way – and some people say, like, well, what do you care if he got money? It put them over the cap, and they next year have to be below the cap in part. I mean, he's not alone – but in part because of the bonuses they gave out, including a plus-minus bonus to a guy who was minus eleven. Mm. There you go, Ray. <laughs> well,
4: I, but you know what? Having said that, he's still one of the few players on the team I think is, is worth a damn.
3: Maybe a uh, damn.
4: Yeah, I mean, if he's—if you're talking about the guys on that current roster, yeah, there's worse that you want to go f- that you're willing to go forward with. He would be one of the he to me would be one of the keepers.
3: Performance bonus? No, uh, probably not. Okay. Jack in Santa is with us. Dude.
2: Hey, Rob. Good, good to hear your
8: voice. Thank you. I love I loved her synopsis. That 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 was really really wonderful. Good morning, Ray. Good
4: Morning, good, Jack. Good to,
8: Yeah. Um I I want to start with my famous moment and and use it as a synopsis, a visual synopsis. Uh, let me tell may. people what
3: it is just in case they tuned in recently. Uh, this is, uh, we always do our Scheib Sports moment, our friends at Scheib Sport. Uh, okay. and, we, and we give away a $50 gift certificate to Scheib Sports. And this week it is uh, the anniversary of Aaron Rowan's catch and face-first crash into the center field wall. And so the question is, give us an athlete, or give us a Philadelphia sports figure, excuse me, who you will always associate with one singular moment. So who you got?
8: So before the wall of Mark Landsberger and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Doctor J goes behind behind the backboard, and comes out the other side with his arm, making a reverse layup that is one of the most famous shots ever. It is one of that
3: the greatest had, shots ever. Was that the cradle it, the baby? No, no, no. That was cradle a different. One. Another. See, which is why I would not take this as a winner because with Doc there are so many great moments. Right.
8: Right. Yeah. Well, this one. But that was a great one. one. Yeah, and Magic Johnson is there with with Michael Cooper saying, "Do you think if we asked him, he'd do it again?"
3: (laughs) By the way, are you are you watching Ray Dinger's favorite series, Winning Time on HBO?
8: Yes, I am.
3: It's pretty compelling (laughs) trash.
8: But 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 um. Glenn you got you got to watch Apple TV Make or Break it's from My World it's it's about surfing and okay. I want to share all share right. that with all you right. give us uh yeah. give
3: us your six thoughts real fast
8: Okay that defensive play that Maxi made when when he ran all the way down the court and threw the ball back in the court from the end line, yeah. I don't remember anyone ever doing anything like that before. <laughs>
4: that was that was that was pretty spectacular athletic play on his part, and it was a big play in the game. I mean, it was really kind of it was really kind of it was re- it was really kind of a backbreaker. It really was.
8: It was. It was a turning point in the game, and, and I'm like, what just happened? So. Uh, I'm really enjoying them coming alive, and and it was great to see all the people in the Wells Fargo uh, uh, um, Arena there going crazy. Yeah, like, it was. Silly fan- silly yeah, and they they too. deserved
3: it. Thank you, dude. Always be well. After those first two games, you know, they everybody needed that.
4: Well, they got the uh, the real. They brought in the three good bell ringers last night. They got the crowd fired up. Oh, who they have? And they had. Uh, I missed the beginning Davis, of the game. They had Jordan Davis. They oh yeah, the, yeah, yeah. They had I Jordan the Davis, picture. they had yeah. Nicobe Dean, yeah. and they had uh, Hassan Reddick. Yeah, I saw the three
3: new Eagles. I saw the picture of them afterward. I didn't see them ringing the bell. Got a very warm welcome. Jordan Davis could put another crack in that. Yeah, thing. he Man, could. He's a big lad. Yes, he is. I'm Excited about this. We're going to talk some football tomorrow. I'm, I'm. I know it's just like rookie minicamp and stuff. Right. A couple things yesterday I liked. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get we get tomorrow.
4: There's some things about this draft I liked.
3: I know. That's good. Uh, let's get Frank before the break. What's going on, Frank? Yes. Hey, guys. Hello, Hi. Frank. Yes, I just wanted to mention uh, uh, Aaron
2: Rowan. He mm-hmm. was uh, asked by the reporter, uh, he was set up with that. He said that it was a player in town, uh, Waters,
9: who, Ricky Waters, who
2: uh,
3: said for who, for what, and he, when he allegated that uh, that catch. Yes. In fact, Ray, uh, For just to refresh people, when we play the Aaron Rowan quote, for right. who, for my teammates, for what, for the fans, I forget exactly what it was, but whatever, something like that. Right. Uh, I am told by reliable source that the reporter who did, as Frank says, prime him for that was none other than our own Paul Jolivitz. Really? Yes. Good for him. Uh-huh. There you go. Set, yeah. up, a, I didn't set remember up a good it was quote. Jolly. Yeah. So, it what do you jolly, have for the uh, the athlete who gave you that memorable moment?
9: I would have to go with Tug McGraw with the horses and the dogs. Ray, you watched a lot of seasons of
3: Tug McGraw. Does it all boil down to that one moment? That's the one that I, that's the one I remember. But Tug
4: had you know Tug had many. Yeah. But that's the one you know the, yeah. the striking out Willie Wilson is the one everybody remembers.
3: See, again, in my own mind, and again, Kyle Quinn, the judge. I don't influence judges. I let judges go where they choose to go. Well, of course. But in my own mind, mm-hmm. if it is a great player who was here for a period of years, and I can name you five different things he did, it doesn't count. Right. I say Tug McGraw. I think Tug McGraw. You think Tug McGraw. We may have different memories entirely. Right. I actually think Tug McGraw, I think of his great quote. If if a horse doesn't eat it, I don't want to play on it.
4: That was Dick Allen.
3: If I can't smoke it, I don't want to play on it. Okay, that's Tug McGraw. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Pardon me.
4: They're in the same realm. Yeah, they are. Okay. They are. But, But you're right. I mean, there's different. Tug McGraw had many moments. The big moment was striking at Willie Wilson. Yeah, but he had many moments. Right, that's why I think what you're talking about. Aaron Rowan kind of had one moment. We think Aaron Rowan. We think of Aaron Rowan. Yeah, and like J.J. J. Danio had like right one moment. That's kind of what you're looking for. Yeah,
3: can I give you another hockey one? Because nobody else is going to do this one, and it's like the guy who I've disliked as much as any player in the history of this town since I've lived here. Jeez, who would that be? Michael Stinkin' Layton. Oh God. When if I say Michael Layton, what do you think? I think of the goal that ended the Stanley Cup Finals. Yes. Thank you. I still
4: haven't. I still don't. I still haven't seen this. No. I still haven't seen it.
3: No. Nor did Doc Emmerich. No. Who went later and re- re-recorded the whole thing? Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's the one for me.
4: But you knew it was. You just knew with him. You knew it was going to end badly. I mean, you just knew it. It's so.
3: They're in the finals and you're looking. And you just say, "There's right. no way they can win." with what this What goalie's going to carry me to the cup? Let's see. Do we have Wad? Do we have Hasek? Who do we have? Ken Dryden here? What? Oh, Michael Layton. Yeah. Ooh, Ray, coming up. Yeah. A a new TV show that I'm going to do for what we're watching. Yeah. And it's on HBO. Oh, that means I could watch it. Yes! That's exciting. I hope so. (laughs) Uh, 12 o'clock, tell us your story with Billy Clement. Ray and Glenn. 215 592 94 94. Hey, uh, just like our team hitting Grand Slam, you too can score big with United Tires Memorial Day sale. Right now, visit your local United Tire and walk off with up to $200 in savings all on your favorite brands like Michelin, Goodyear, Continental, and more. Plus, United Tire is teamed up with the United Way and is matching donations dollar for dollar to help aid millions of displaced Ukrainians. Score big this Memorial Day. Help those in need with United Tire. Remember, don't drive alone, drive United. All right, Ray. I'm glad we played that little cut there at the end from Breaking Bad because I'm going to make mention to that in a second. Um, one of the great, TV dramas of the last 25 years, it was The Wire, uh, an HBO police versus citizens drama placed in Baltimore. Based on the writings of Baltimore Sun Reporter, it was developed and written by David Simon and George Pelicanos. I forget. Did you watch The Wire?
4: Um, I got on it very, very late. After being told about it by you and um, Big Daddy loved it.
3: Big Daddy got me on it. Big Daddy, Big, Big Daddy, Daddy was really, a great TV guy.
4: He was, and uh, you were very high on it, and Big Daddy was very high on it. So I, I got on it very, very late. But it was also, uh, it was, it also had a very strong, and because it was written in part by a newspaper guy, it had a very strong newspaper theme yes, that ran through always. it too, which yes. I
3: found very interesting. Okay, I would say The Wire is one of the essential TV dramas of the 21st century. This is my five that I say if you watch TV and you take yourself seriously, these are the five dramas that you have to have watched. Okay. The Wire, Sopranos, mm-hmm. Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones, and now Ozark, which I recently finished the final season of Ozark. Those are the five. Kyle, how many of those five did you watch? Sorry, run through them again? I'd, I'd seen part of Ozark. I'm in the middle of Ozark right now. Sopranos? I did not like Sopranos. The- All right, we're done. <laughs> Never mind. I'll, I'll 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 move on. What the hell's wrong with him?
4: Can't imagine. That, a, no too, one
3: has ever said that sentence in the history of America. No, it's like a that's, soap
4: opera. I couldn't do it. Oh, uh, see, I disagree. I I thought it was I, I thought
3: it was the best TV series I've I I've, was to me it was thoroughly thoroughly engrossing. It was an amazing show. Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones, Ozark, and The Wire are the five essential dramas of the 21st century. I've seen Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones. Love them. All right, we're done here. You're out. Okay. <laughs> anyway, Ray, now comes We Own This City, which is, tell me if this sounds familiar, an HPO police versus citizens drama played out on the streets of Baltimore based on the writings of a Baltimore Sun reporter developed and written by David Simon and George Pelicanos. <laughs> We're going there again. Sounds like it. Looks familiar. It is unfair to compare any cop show to The Wire Uh, especially after I've seen two episodes. This is new. But it's hard not to. And certainly it's unavoidable to watch this and not have the wire forefront in your mind. And it's really good. Um, The focus is a real-life Baltimore police unit, the Gun Trace Task Force, which perverted its mission of getting drugs off the street into one of terrorizing citizens and stealing cash and other... Drugs from Raid Targets. Okay. Uh, Again, all based on true story of things that occurred in Baltimore generally between 2015 and 2020. So it's pretty recent history. Uh, It's it's real-life characters and events. And I think probably to reference something we talk about a lot, closer to the truth than Winning Time portrays those Showtime Lakers. I would hope so. Yeah, I'm still watching that, by the way. Been catching up on that, have you? No, oh, I'm out. You should see the guy they hired to play Doc. Yeah. it doesn't look at all like Doc. <laughs> not at all. But he's a good character. Like Adrian Brody looks like Pat Riley? <laughs> no, no, not at all. They're trying. Yeah, it's, it's in that, I don't want to get sidetracked on that show. Um, and again, but I'll reference The Wire again because The Wire has a very solid blend of good cops and bad ones, moral and corrupt. And We Built This City tries the same, uh, although at least through the first two episodes, it makes you wonder whether it's possible that the cops and the citizens of a large poverty-stricken city can coexist. Like, it's it, it's just it's not going to work. Uh, the acting is great. A guy named John Berthel... Um, who you saw Bernthal, as- yeah. Yeah, he was coach uh, Rich, Rick Massey in King Richard just recently. Mm-hmm. Um, he plays the ringleader of the cop crime gang. He's a good actor. Yeah. He's a good actor because I've never seen him do evil. Oh. Oh, I've seen him. Have you? Yeah. Yeah, well, he does that. Yeah. Okay. You
4: know, and I also saw him as Lee Iacocca. He was, remember, he was in uh, Ford versus Ferrari.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't spot that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. How about that? Well, he's good in this. as like the the worst of the cops. Um, And there are lots of actors that you will recognize from shows like L.A. Law and The Wire. I think there's like a whole New York, Philly, Baltimore, like, connection of actors who are always in shows that are filmed generally here in the middle Atlantic. And so you'll see a lot of those guys. Very solid character actors. Six-time series. Based on real life events, we own this city. It is a tough watch at times, as you can imagine. Uh, but it's compelling. It's well written. It uh, it aspires to be more than a two dimensional cop show, and I recommend it. If I'm going to, and I know you always like if I give you like a mashup, sure. And I don't know if you watch this other show. It's it's the Shield meets the Wire. Oh, okay. And that's two well, pretty that's, good shows.
4: Yeah, that's two really good shows. I mean, if it if it's if it's a mashup of those two shows, that's a good
3: show. So that's my recommendation for the for, for now. Again, I, I think it's probably drops every Sunday night, uh, but I just watched the first two episodes uh, during downtime this week. So I recommend We Own This City. Okay. And everybody should watch those five first shows that I said, the essential dramas of the 20th century. Do not listen to Kyle Quinn. He is young and out of his mind. Okay. Dan and Langhorne is with us. Hi, Dan. Dan, should they get rid of Joe Girardi? Hey, Glenn, how you doing? I'm all right. Should they get rid of Joe Girardi?
12: Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I know at the top of the show you said maybe a week or two, and I think I would, I would agree with that at this point. Um, and I think that um, when, when you have a loss like the other night, just a devastating kind of, you know, mm-hmm. soul crushing loss. I mean, I know baseball is a long haul, but those, those kind of losses, um, they, they, they hurt. And um, I think he really. First of all, I think that the, normally the thing that you would want the least is to kind of sit around and think about it for a while, which is what is happening here. Um with the rain and everything, but I think that in the long run might kind of be a good thing because I think we need to kind of see how this team responds, you mm-hmm. know? And um
3: I agree, they're going nowhere now.
12: Yeah, well, they got some time to sit around and think about what they're going to do. Are they going to fold it up or are they going to come back and um
3: you know, say enough
12: is enough. We got to, we got to get this thing together. So I would give that about a week or two. And I think we'll have the answer by that point um, because they gotta, they gotta kick things into gear and um, you know, losses like that, you kind of find out, you know, what you're made of. Mm-hmm. And um, so I would give them a little time to see what that response is. But um, you know, other okay. than that, I think that uh, <laughs> we're just about ready to, to, to move on and, and,
3: when we are praying for rain on Mother's Day weekend, Ray, mm, that's not a good sign, right? That kind of tells you all you need to know. Yeah. The one thing you got to know, Dan,
4: is your, you know, is the stretch of games you got coming up now. I mean, I don't even know if they're going to get a single game in here with the Mets. But then they go on the road. They have to play in Seattle. Then they play go to LA and play the Dodgers. They come home and they play the Padres and they play the Dodgers again. Then they go on the road and they play the Braves and they play the Mets in New York. That's Ooh. that's their next three weeks. Ooh.
3: Joe ain't Joe is not surviving that.
4: I mean they could be I mean Joe they could is, be they could they, they they could be buried by Memorial. Uh, Day.
3: Joe needs the Reds on this schedule. You see yeah, the Reds he, are three and twenty two? I know. Joe needs the Reds. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> what is they your athlete be. that you will always remember for one moment?
12: Okay, so for this guy, um I know like a lot of people when this guy played back during the Phillies run, um, you know, I know I didn't miss a game, so one way or another, I saw every bat that this guy had in a Phillies uniform, but I can only think of one and um
3: that's Matt's stairs. Oh, excellent! Very good one. What? What? what get, Kyle. Get us the call. That that was. That's a really good one, Dan. Yeah, the call. Uh, Fransky's call on that was so great. Man, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't. I mean,
4: you talk about a no doubt about at home run. Yeah. I mean, that was one. <laughs> I mean, off the bat, you knew. You knew. I mean, he just crushed that ball. Yeah.
3: What was the expression they said in case of emergency? Use stairs.
4: Oh, is that what it said? Well, they, they, they I used like to that. be the
3: yeah, they used to be the thing. All right, here we go.
5: And a three-one pitch, swing and a high oh, fly shit. ball, deep right field. Ethier turns yes. and he watches this one sail deep into the pavilion seats and right. <laughs> Phillies lead in the eighth on a
8: pinch hit, two-run home run from Matt Stairs. Seven-five, Phillies lead it. Oh my! You talk about silencing about fifty-five thousand people.
3: Could <laughs> be wrong. I believe Larry Anderson enjoyed the moment. <laughs> you think? By the way, happy birthday, of Larry Anderson, yesterday. Oh, was it? I bet you he enjoyed the rain out. Could to stay home, hang out with his wife, and have his birthday. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, There you go, boy. With, what a great fellow. I mean, he's, he's LA. Yeah. Oh
4: yeah. He's, he's a good guy. I, yeah. And I, you know, I, I aren't too many aren't too many guys that that I actually covered as a player when I was at the newspaper that are still around, you know, that are still around and right. you still see them and you still get to, to banter with them and talk. And Larry's one of the few. Uh, and what a delight. I mean, what a, what a terrific player he was. What a great guy in the clubhouse he was. Uh, and what a tremendous job he's done as a broadcaster. It's, uh, he's, he, I mean, he's a guy that people in this town, baseball
3: fans, are going to talk about forever and ever. What a good guy. Hey, Amen. 215-592-9494. We'll do one more segment and then we'll do tell us your story with Billy Clement, and then we'll come back. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack now. Hey, uh, by the way, tell us uh, what we're watching, what we're watching, sponsored by Guide Door and Window by any window or door. Get the second to 50% off, plus interest refinancing for up to 18 months. Call Guida to Door and Window today, 1877 guida or visit them at
8: Go, G-U-I-D-A.com.
3: Hey, are you tired of dealing with your old drafty windows and doors in your house? Well, maybe it's time you finally go guide. Her. The great people at Guided Door and Window will help make your window and door replacement project more affordable with their buy one, get one half off sale. For every door window you buy, you get a second one at 50% off, and you can mix and match the savings. You suit your own needs. You buy an entry door get half off a storm door. If you buy a patio door, you can get 50% off a window. If you need to replace all the windows and doors in your house, you can save 50% on half your project. Actually, a friend of mine needs to get windows done in her house I connected her with Ronnie Lamonico, the great guy over at Guided Drawing Window they had a great conversation and things are going to work out I'm delighted to do that the more you need the more you save at Guida plus they're making it easier for you to afford your project with no money down and interest refinancing for up to 18 months act now offers for limited time only restrictions apply for full details call Guida today schedule a free no obligation in-home estimate at 1-877-GO-GUIDA or visit them at That's go G-U-I-D-A- Dot com. Right, your Glenn Mac now. Let's get Ed from Moralton, who's been hanging patiently. Hello, Ed. Good morning.
5: The uh, guy before me stole my player. Oh, so I'm no. Gonna go. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. 1993 World Series. This guy steps to the plate. Joe Carter steps to the plate and hits a home run off of
3: yeah, Mitch. Mitch Williams. Yeah, Mitch is a good name for this. And the same as, listen, we both love Mitch, who was a terrific guest recently on Tell Us Your Story. And Mitch man wore it better than anybody ever would. And Mitch had a Mitch had a long and successful career. Yes, he did. I mean, I like to think of Mitch jumping off the mound when they beat Atlanta, right? right. To get to that World Series. He had a really good year. Yeah. And but,
4: and, yeah. and he you know, and he he either won or saved every game in the Atlanta series. Yeah. So But I hear you Ed. But as as yeah. for if you're talking about a moment, yeah, the Joe Carter's the moment, no question.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So question for Glenn. Who are the, who's gonna be the Flyers next coach? Who do you want to be the Flyers' next coach?
3: I would like to see either John Tortorella or... Uh, who do I want to see? Rick Tockett. Yeah. Do you go to Rick
5: Tockett? Why? Yeah, why Why Tockett?
3: Because he has a pulse. Because he's... Because I think he would be a demanding coach who would ask of his players what he did. Okay. Which may or may not work. Right? May may yeah. may, may entirely fail. But
4: You sound like a, you sound like you're not in on tocket here, Edward. Well why? yeah.
5: I, I, look, I you know he hasn't really won anywhere he's been, so we're we're picking up a guy that once again you know is not not really a winner. So I, I'd rather get a guy who's got a history of winning. So who do you want? A guy, just because he, you know, we're going back to the same thing where we say, okay, he was an ex flyer. Well, I gave you, I gave guy. you John
3: Tortorella. I, you know, yeah. Scotty okay. Bowman not available. Who you have in mind?
5: <laughs> okay, well I I would go with Tortorella if I had to pick between those. two. So I would not go with pocket. either. One last thing, if you got a second. I have an article with Paul Westhead before he left Philly from not from the seventies, and he's portrayed as a dummy on that series, the Lakers series, but this is a really great article. How do I get it to you guys? I think you'll have a kick reading it. Email it can you email it to me? Yeah, I can email. What, All how right. do I do? Uh you know what? Are you on Twitter or Facebook? I am not on either one of those. The hell's but wrong it's with a great you? Great article. You're gonna get a you're not gonna feel the same way about Paul Westhead after you read this article. Well, we had Paul Westhead on
3: our show uh two weeks ago.
5: Right. I, I, I know. That's why I yeah. dug this up and it was written by a you know local writer uh, I'm gonna put you on
3: hold. He, Kyle's gonna okay. give you give you my email. Kyle, you know my email? Yeah, he knows it. Okay. Good. He'll give it to you. Uh, Dr. Mark Pollard joins us from Cooper Bone and Joint, the experts there. We always like to check in with him. And, Doc, Ray wants to ask you about a, a young arm in the Eagles uh, uh, minicamp. Yeah, oh, Doc.
4: Right? Uh, yeah, Doctor. They had um, the Eagles drafted Carson Strong, who's a quarterback from Nevada, who if you just looked at his college career and you looked at his statistics, you would think that this guy, particularly in a year when it was not a great quarterback class, you would think this guy would have been – at the worst, a third or fourth round draft pick. He wound up being undrafted, and the Eagles signed him as it got him as signed him as a free agent. Uh, and it purely was the medicals, uh, the people, the doctors that checked him out. Uh, some teams just took him off their board. And I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you about his knee injury here, and you can tell me how serious this is, and um, is is this the sole reason why he f- he fell out of the draft altogether? When he was in high school, he got an MRI prior to his senior year, which revealed. An osteochloritis dissecans lesion that resulted in eight biodegradable nails being inserted uh, to the to the to mend a crack in his lateral femur, can, uh, candle bone,
13: condyle probably. condyle
4: bone. Right. Okay. What the, so that's the so that, that so that's the injury that he had in high school, which has forced a lot of colleges to back off and not offer him a scholarship. That's how he winds up in Nevada. Then before his senior year at Nevada, they took they re, they go back into the knee again. They took cartilage from a cadaver and bone cells scraping from his hip. Uh, and they did an allograft to stabilize the right knee in February before his senior year. Uh, and then he went out and played the whole senior year, and he passed for 4,000 yards, completed 70% of his passes. Uh, and was able to function on that knee, but those sound like two pretty major surgeries, and he's, um, and that's why he wasn't drafted, and here he is in Philadelphia. So uh, I read about that, and it didn't sound good to me. But I mean, you're you're the doctor, and I'm not. What does that tell you?
13: Uh, well, there's a couple things that are potentially concerning. Um, uh, the entity is probably known as uh, osteochondritis desiccans which essentially means that, you know, the end of the femur bone at the knee joint, normally you have cartilage that's covering the bone in that area. And with this uh, condition, part of the cartilage and bone start to separate uh, from the surrounding bone. And so it can create almost like a pothole. Um, in the ideal situation, you kind of fix the, the piece that's coming loose back in place so you keep the person's native you know, cartilage and some of their bone to put it back in place, and it sounds like that's what they did when he was in high school with that surgery to put those uh, biodegradable pins, essentially absorbable nails or screws that you put around that lesion to kind of tack it down in hopes that it'll heal there. I guess the concerning thing is that, you know, something must have happened that it came loose again, and they had to do that other surgery, um, probably like chondrocyte implantation where you take cartilage cells and you essentially put them in the pothole that's formed and they'll kind of cover it up. Um, and that takes a, you know, that's a tough recovery. So it's a good sign that he was able to get back and play his senior year. Um, you know, we're not entirely sure about the durability of some of those kind of surgeries. Uh, so, you know, again, uh, I think that would be something to keep the eye on, but I would tell you that the most of the studies show that the outcomes of when that, osteochondritis desiccans, or OCD, happens to the lateral femoral condyle, which means the outside part of the femur bone,
5: mm-hmm.
13: they don't do as well as when they happen to the medial side, which oh. is the inside part of the femur bone. So,
3: so again, a rough I'd, go for the youngster.
13: Yeah, it's a good sign that he was able to get back to it, okay. but uh, I'd watch it closely.
3: All right. Dr. Mark Parler, always a pleasure. Thanks for being our guest.
13: All right.
3: Thanks so much. Have a great day. I appreciate it. Yeah, it sounds like a long shot. I know how highly he was regarded and the fact that he wasn't drafted says something. we got to go to the break. But the Eagles, again, I want to talk some football tomorrow, but the Eagles also got your sleeper quarterback, the Ivy Leaguer. And no, they don't anymore. Wait, what happened?
4: He he reneged. (laughs) What? He signed with the Jacksonville Jaguars. That was fast. He gave them like a verbal, yeah, sure, I'm coming uh, on the phone. And then he
3: looked at the depth chart and said,
4: "Well," and and he saw that they drafted Carson. He saw that they signed Carson Strong. Ah, so he uh, he. Jacksonville. To- Doug Peterson called him up, oh. and he said, "Okay, I'm there." Oh well, that's he looked a- at the Jaguars. He looked at their situation, decided, "Yeah, maybe I have a better shot down there." Bummer.
3: All right, we're gonna we're gonna take a break. Ray, do me a favor. See if, yes, can you set this up in 30 seconds?
4: Uh, sure. Um, I think. <laughs> well, I don't know that Billy Clement needs a whole lot of introduction here. Uh, he was a high draft pick of the Flyers. Came in, uh, was a very valuable player on that team. The two back-to-back cup teams, and in fact, he. Scored the goal uh, that basically iced the second cup victory uh, in Buffalo and then was traded after that year and then played a few more years in Washington and then in Atlanta and then went on and became an outstanding hockey broadcaster and an actor and an author and um, is a guy that um, knows his hockey and uh, has a pretty good grasp of the English language. I think his interview was a lot of fun.
3: That's coming up next right here on 94.
2: Kendrachuk blocks it, and it comes to the near side. Chuck. Back to Clement a break away. He scores. Bill Clement for a case of tasty cake, and it's two nothing Flyers. Clement mobbed by his whole bench as the Flyers come out on that.
3: Welcome back, Ray Danger, Glenn Mack, Now on Saturday at noon, it is time for "Tell Us Your Story," sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at MeridianBanker dot com slash WIP. Well, Bill Clement is a Philadelphia hockey institution played four years for the Flyers during their glory days, scoring the put-it-away goal in their Stanley Cup repeat clincher in 1975. After 11 NHL seasons, Bill went on to a tremendously successful career as a broadcaster, many of those years as a color man and analyst for Flyers games. He joins us now from his home in North Carolina. Bill, thanks for being our guest today.
7: Pleasure to be on
3: board. Uh, We always like to start with uh, our guest's childhood. Uh, You grew up in, if I have this right, Thurzo, Quebec, um, a French-speaking city. Uh, In fact, you grew up two blocks from Guy Lafleur, who we learned recently passed away and and played hockey with him as a kid. Uh, What was that like?
7: Well, I was as in awe of Guy Lafleur playing with him uh, and watching him as a kid before I got to play with him as you know, millions of hockey fans were for so many years. He was um, just an incredible... Before there was a Gretzky and before there was a Mario Lemieux, and before there was social media, before there was Internet, Guy was a household name in the province of Quebec because he had come within a hair of, of winning the Quebec Peewee Tournament, which is the biggest amateur hockey tournament in the world. And you know, this ragtag bunch of kids from Thurso... Um, Just about beat, and they were a class C, I believe, based on population. Thurso had 3,000 people. Uh, Thurso played in the championship game against one of the big teams from Toronto and almost beat them. So everybody knew who Guy was, and I certainly did. It's funny, I'm I'm kind of an anomaly because I grew up English in the province of Quebec. I went to a little English school. I also grew up Protestant, and our town was almost completely French Catholic. So the the English kids weren't invited to play on the town team um, until a very progress- progressive brother of the Catholic order came to came to run the Catholic school in my hometown and invited the English kids and the Protestant kids to try out for the town team. And I immediately made it um, and uh, ended up playing uh, three seasons with Guy and he played up a year. Uh, he's actually uh, was uh, his soul rest in peace. Uh, he was nine months younger than I was, and um, so we, we he played up a year, and we were able to play three years together. And we left we left home the same year. He was fourteen, and I was fifteen. Mm-hmm. We both made junior teams in the Quebec League, and and went on to our pro careers.
4: Bill, it was obvious that you um, you had a lot of you had a lot of talent. That was pretty obvious from the beginning. But when did when did it begin to dawn on you that you might that this might not just be a game that you were playing as a kid that 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 hockey might be your future how at what age were you that you began to be scouted and you began to think that maybe you could take this further?
7: Well, I was scouted when I was fifteen by the Chicago Blackhawks, and that's why I, I left home and went to the a, a team in the quebec league um and it, there were twenty one year olds on our team and I was fifteen um there were seventy four guys at camp uh, in in the town called Sorel. Uh, to try to make the Sorrell Blackhawks, which was one of the junior farm teams of the uh, Chicago Blackhawks at the time. And there were four openings. And I was big uh, by, by standards then, and I could really skate. And they ended up making the team. Did it dawn on me that the NHL was ahead somewhere on the road? No, not at that age. I, I think it was probably when I was 18 and by that time was playing for the Ottawa 67s. I was an original of Ottawa 67 in 1967. Mm-hmm. We were an expansion team. By the time I was 18, I, 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 our coach was actually telling me, look, if you take care of yourself and keep working as hard as you work, um, there's a pretty good chance you're going to end up in the NHL, and you might even end up being a first-round pick, which never happened. I was drafted uh, early in the second round. But that's probably when it it dawned on me that it could be a reality. But it's really interesting that you asked that question, because I don't know, about 35 years ago, I mean, I I turned 71 last uh, last December, but I went to a little school reunion. There were only three school rooms, uh, rooms in the school where I went until the year I went to school and it expanded to five big rooms and a gymnasium. But at the school reunion, uh, and I had no recollection of this. The kids that I went to school with said, you know, you always said you were going to play in the NHL. And I had no recollection <laughs> of, of making that statement. But it reminded me years later when I understood the, imp- the importance in any endeavor of starting with the end in mind. Uh, it reminded me that so many things are possible if you start with the end in mind. So I guess I had my sights set on the target when I was a kid, but it only be, became a reality or or started to become real when I was about 18.
3: Bill Clement is our guest on Tell Us Your Story. You mentioned those uh, Ottawa 67s when they started. I look, man, the first team went six wins, 45 losses, and three ties. Had yeah, to be tough.
7: That year, fortunately that year, I broke my arm oh. and, <laughs> and missed most of those That's games.
3: That's
7: it. They would have won those games.
3: Uh, and you played yeah, with some right. terrific players. You played with Danny Potvin and Blake Dunlap and Bunny LaRock down there. Um, yeah, you you were not I, I I did not see you play in those days. Obviously, you were not a pr- prolific scorer. Your third and final season, you had 19 goals in 54 games, uh, and you weren't a first round pick, but you were a second round pick, as you said, 18th overall, which is, you know, these days would be middle of the first round. What was the skill set you had that was attractive to the NHL at that point?
7: Uh, skating ability, work ethic, defensive ability. Uh, The one thing that was lacking was offensive ability, and that's why I I spent a year in the minors, and the Flyers, uh, our coach was named Eddie Bush, and the Flyers and Keith Allen gave him strict instructions not to let me kill any penalties, which was like depriving me of what I needed to breathe and and eat. And they they said, just let him play power play all the time. Uh, But the reason I wasn't as gifted offensively was – I didn't start playing organized hockey till I was 12. I, I told you about not being invited to play real organized hockey when I made it when I was 12. I guess I was shy and insecure and, and always felt there was somebody else on the team that could, you know, put the puck behind a goalie better than I could. So I dished all the time and to the point where, you know, it, be- it became problematic. <laughs> you got to shoot, you got to shoot. Uh, but I always felt there was somebody else that could that put the puck away better than I could. So I, I, I dug pucks out. I opened ice up for other players and then passed off. And it, it's funny, one of the, you know, when people say, you know, what are your greatest memories of your career? Well, winning two Stanley Cups, obviously, is number one. But they said, what, what, do, what do you consider great individual achievements? And I never scored 20 goals at any level of my life until I made it to the NHL. And I had three 20-goal seasons, which, which doesn't make me a Hall of Famer, but It allows me to answer the question when I've been asked over the years, are are scorers made or are they developed? And I said, well, look, the big guy upstairs is the only guy that can make you a 60 goal scorer, but I'm living walking proof that if you work at it hard enough and stick with it long enough and are afforded the opportunity that everybody can improve. Um, So yeah, I, I got a real late start playing. Didn't think I was good enough to shoot the puck and score and as a result, those last couple of years, junior, there were no twenties anywhere. It was eighteen goals and then nineteen goals. But as you
4: said, you 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 became known as a very good defensive player. You could really skate. You understood the principles of defense, uh, right. and you and you came along and you came along in an in, in junior era where there were a lot of really dynamic centermen who later on became stars in the NHL. Uh, one of them was Perrault, Perreault, who you who you had a shadow when you were a junior. And also a guy yeah. that beca- and also a guy that became your teammate in Philadelphia and that was Rick McLeish.
7: yeah every team had a dynamic center most of the teams did and as an expansion team coming into Ottawa, um, our coach knew that one of the things we had to do was to shut down the the opponent our opponent's top center so he would just tell me follow him around and don't let him touch the puck. So that was another reason that I didn't score that many goals or develop many offensive skills. And and it got to the point where a guy like Gilbert Perot would have me trailing him to his bench. I'd spin off to go back to our bench and, and he would just do a little button hook at the door. <laughs> he, he would fake going off, right? So he could keep playing. But I mean, I, I shadowed uh, Marcel Dion, Daryl Sittler, Rick McLeish, Dale Tallon, of course, Gilbert Perreault. Um There was every, every team had one. If we played a team, they didn't have a dominant center. I was kind of turned loose, so to speak. At least I didn't have that you know, that limiting assignment of of never caring about touching the puck. Coach Bill Long would say, "I don't care if you ever touch the puck; just don't let him touch it."
3: Mm-hmm.
7: Uh, so you know that that didn't really lend itself to developing that offensive skill that I lacked. So you get drafted by the
3: Flyers, as you say. You start out in the AHL, and then you get you come up uh, December nineteen seventy one. Your second game in the NHL against the Canadians. You get an assist a minute 42 into the game. goal, Rare goal by Ed Van Imp, by the way. And then you score your first NH, NHL goal later in that period. One period, a goal and an assist. Do you remember the play? Do you remember your first goal?
7: Oh, hell yeah. Um, I, I actually, and you know, for a guy that didn't shoot very much, I was one-on-one against Jacques Le Perrier, a defenseman for Montreal. Ken Dryden was in goal. And I got to the blue line, and Le Perrier gave me the blue line. He backed in over the blue line just enough for me to, you know, to to take a mighty wind-up and blast a shot. And it just blew by Ken Dryden. And... I can tell you fans in Philadelphia waited for four years for me to do that again. And it never, and it never happened. It was, I don't think I've ever shot a puck harder than that. Uh, But I do remember it. I ended up getting a goal and an assist my fourth game in too against Buffalo and, and was there to stay. What's really interesting too, about my, my rise from the minors to the NHL, I feel very fortunate that I, I didn't have to go up and down and up and down. That's so hard emotionally you know, on a young player. I, I I was called up when I was called up. I never played another game in the minors. Mm-hmm. But I found out years later from the Flyers director of player personnel, Marcel Peltier, that um, that that I was kept in the minors longer than I should have been. Our coach was a guy named Eddie Bush that coached against me in junior. He coached in Hamilton and then he came and coached in Quebec. And in the next year, I I I started, spent a couple of months in Richmond in the American League. And I, I found out too from our junior coach in Ottawa that Eddie Bush had always tried to trade for me. He loved my work ethic. He loved, you know, how just I, I was kind of a workaholic. That's how I played. And he wanted to trade for me. Well, all of a sudden he's coaching pro and he has me on his roster. And Marcel Peltier told me that every week they would call down and ta- there wasn't instant video available. And they would ask Eddie how I was doing. And he, he would say, oh, he's struggling. He's not doing very well. <laughs> and I was, I, I thought I was playing pretty damn well. So Marcel Peltier and Keith Allen came down on December the, what did you say, Ray, the, the date that I played my uh, my first NHL game was December the 19th, I think. Or 18th, right, I just right? said Something December like 1971, that. right. Right, right. Well, Marcel and Keith Allen came down and watched one game, and I was called up the very they, they told me right after the game get on a plane tomorrow you're going to play for us in detroit so i played in richmond in the american league on a friday night in detroit for the flyers on the saturday night and that game against montreal on the spectrum was the third game in three nights with travel so i was kind of running on adrenaline maybe that's why i, I took that one shot so hard uh but i i probably would have been in the nhl a couple of months sooner had eddie, eddie bush not <laughs> really liked having me on his roster. Crazy. <laughs> Did you uh, when you and you and you were
4: aware of the organization? You were aware who was playing on the big club. But when you looked around, and you you were a natural center, you always were from the time you started playing. When you looked at the team that uh, that you were going to be joining, and you saw. How strong they were down the middle when they have they have they have Bobby Clark they have Rick McLeish they have Oris Kinderchuk who's a very useful little player that uh, that, that that they loved uh, and then later on they trade for Terry Crisp I mean you're looking around uh, is it a, does it cross your mind that you know where's where's my role here how do, how do I fit in
7: Yeah a- absolutely but but it, it 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 dawned on me that I mean the first first thing I did when I was drafted by the Flyers I, I was at the draft in Montreal at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel. It wasn't a big deal that it is today, and I was drafted by the Flyers. My first first thought was, who the hell do they have down the middle, right? So so I wanted to kind of evaluate my chances of making the team. But I actually was a member of the organization before Rick McLeish and before Ors Kenderchuk. And when I looked at the roster, the centers were Jimmy Johnson, Gary Peters, Serge Bernier. Of course, Clarkey was you know leading the pack, even as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old. So things changed pretty quickly uh, with the roster, and we acquired Oris. I, I was clicking along, I thought, pretty well with my position. Um, but then Oris Kinderchuk came along, and while I could skate circles around him, he protected the puck, sk- played with his head up, distributed the puck, and, and he was a kind of a natural center to play between Don Selesky and Dave Schultz. Um, and, then, and then Ricky when Rick McLeish kind of exploded in the NHL, um, I'm not sure who was going to take his job. I mean, he was a 50-goal scorer the one year. He fit in perfectly with, with Ross Lonsbury and Gary Dornhofer, who I had centered for a little while at the start, but they had more puck skills than I, than I did, and it, it, it kind of became a revolving door of about five or six of us for the last three spots uh, at the forward position, myself, uh, Hound Kelly, uh, Terry Crisp, um, and 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 that's the way it was. It was kind of just a rotation. Freddie worked a lot of us in and out of the lineup. There's no question we had a a deep roster, but I I've always felt that the difference between our roster and the, say the Boston Bruins when we won our first Stanley Cup was our lower level guys, so the guys that were not top six forwards, were not you know the the top players in the roster. I I always believe we were made to feel by Freddie. And by the leaders on our team, Eddie Van Emp and Joe Watson and Bobby Clark, we were made to feel that our roles were important. And that's when I learned that if you feel important, you'll play important. And, and I'm not sure that, that the that the lower guys on the roster for the Bruins felt that way. It was all or all Esposito, you know, the the, the huge names. Everything revolved around them. Our roster was full of star like players like Bobby Clark that shared. Right, that shared and praised and and demanded. I mean, Clarkie was able to have the tough conversation, even as a guy in his young twenties. I'm talking the one-on-one conversations with with individual players, which most leaders and people can't have when they're that young. Um, so, yeah, we, we were sort of in a rotation in and out of the lineup, a number of us, and it it seemed to work. Bill you you mentioned a lot of names there Bill Clement
3: is our guest for tell us your story and um from from when you came up you know in just De- in December 71 through uh, up to and including when the team won those cups it it transitioned it became the Broad Street Bullies and Schultz and Kelly and Sileski and Dupont the whole yeah. the whole crew you are not a shrinking violet but the most penalty minutes you ever had in a season is 51 um you were if you get this reference kind of the Michael Ontke and is Nick Braden in Slapshot. Um, <laughs> what was that like for you to to be a guy on a team where, hey, there were great stars on that team, you know, Bernie and Clark and Barber and so on, but that was kind of the the brand of the team?
7: Yeah. Um, well, whether you wanted to be or not, you were in the middle of it, right? I mean, yeah, sure. when when it hit the fan, uh everybody was, was in on it and I recognized it as one of the one of the important components of how we won games and that was with intimidation. I mean, I, I didn't fight. I, I probably had one fight a year just to announce that I would if I had to. Mm-hmm. Um Terry Crisp didn't didn't fight uh very much at all, if at all. So, you know, Joe Watson never fought, Jimmy never fought, Eddie used his stick, and it was intimidating. (laughs) So we had had a bunch of guys that didn't fight very much, but we also had a a nucleus of players, including the baddest animal in the hockey jungle, Dave Schultz. We we had enough guys to do the heavy lifting that the rest of us didn't really have to. We had to stand up for ourselves, and very often our teammates would stand up for us. But there's there's no question that, that one of the ingredients to us being champions was our ability to intimidate. But, but I, that said, our, our win against the Boston Bruins was significant because they they weren't a team that was that we could intimidate. I mean, they were tougher nails, mm-hmm. all of them. You know, Bobby Orr was a tough player. You know, Phil just kept playing. Phil Esposito, Terry O'Reilly was an animal oh, yeah. the way he played. So <laughs> – I, I don't think anybody can say that we won the series against the Boston Bruins because we intimidated them. Um, I can say that I believe we did the next year against the Buffalo Sabers. That they, they had their tough guys were pseudo tough guys. Our tough guys were really tough guys. <laughs> um, so I, I recognize the toughness of our team as one of the key ingredients to winning. So I I didn't. I certainly didn't mind being part of it. The greatest line I have that that I've ever heard about what it was like to come into the spectrum and play. And I knew that I had to, I played almost seven seasons after I left the flyers organization. So coming to play in, in the spectrum was intimidating even for me coming back. But the best line about what it was like being a visiting player coming into the spectrum was my great friend, Brian Englom who won Stanley cups in Montreal. And I worked with them on TV for a number of years. He said, it was really interesting. He said when the bus would pull into the spectrum down underneath the spectrum and that great big garage door would close behind the bus. When he played for the Montreal Canadians, the bus driver would turn off the bus and it would still be shaking. <laughs> wow. So that's sort of uh, for other teams to come in and play against. Them. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Let's, let's take a quick break and then uh, let's go through those cups. Let's go through your career and let's get to the broadcasting part of your career, which, uh, Boy, a lot of decades, a lot of greatness. Billy Clement is our guest today on Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why. MeridianBank.com.
12: That's right out of a John Wayne
10: Western saga. Duke, what do you think? Well, I thought the game was yesterday, and here it is Easter
2: today. What do you say? It's incredible. What are your impressions of this game? Do somebody else. Do a boom-boom Jeffrey on. Hey.
10: I want to guarantee you hockey's fan across Canada and the United States that this is one of the greatest hockey game ever in the histories of the National Hockey League. And if you ever heard me, Boomers Jeffery on you know me from the Miller Lite commercial. I'm one of the greatest that ever played the games of hockey in this world. Thank you.
3: Well, that voice you just heard imitating John Wayne and Boom Boom Jeffery on is Bill Clement. Uh, a part of the Flyer Stanley Cup teams back in their glory days and a terrific broadcaster for many decades. He joins us today on Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP.
4: Bill, we were talking right before the break that we were talking about the run to the first cup and meeting the... The Boston Bruins in the finals, which was a team that the Flyers had never had any success with in, their, in the early years of their history, beating them anywhere. They had, I think they had only won one game in their history in Boston Garden, and now you got to play them best of seven for the Stanley Cup with them with home ice advantage. But we had Bobby Clark on um, earlier in this series to do Tell Us Your Story, uh, and we talked about that series, and Clark, he said, yeah, everybody thought that it was a big upset, and nobody picked us to win. But we, he said, we as a group, as a team— we felt we were every bit as good as them, if not better. And then he went right down the line. He said, you know, I could play Esposito. I didn't, And they didn't have anybody that could play McLeish. Uh, and he said, and Orr was Orr. Everybody knew that he was the greatest player. He said, but if you went up and down our... And, you know, their goalie was good, but ours was great. He said, if you went man for man beyond yeah. mm-hmm. Orr, he said, we felt... Nobody else felt that way, but we felt that we matched up very well with the Boston Bruins.
7: Yeah, and that, that that whole mentality was hatched by by Clarkie and by, by Fred Shiro, And I I guess if you're, if you're an athlete and you're a young athlete, you don't know any better. And your leaders are saying, you know what, we're as good as they are. And here's why. And go through it. You start, you start drinking the Kool-Aid and going, hell yeah. You know, why, why not? Uh, All we, of course you, you brought up a good point. We hadn't won in seven years in Boston a total of 31 games right. and we had to win one, right. right? Because we didn't have home ice advantage. So, you know, the g- game one was tied and we, we lost game one with 22 seconds to go, which was incredibly deflating. Um, I was in a cast for some torn ligament in my knee. Uh, so I didn't play game one and I'll never, you know, I've talked to people over the years about um stepping out of the playbook and reading from a different script. And that's what Freddie did after game one. Uh, Freddie, we had, we had, you know, a meal after game one that we had lost in a heartbreaker. Then Freddie said, okay, everybody listen up. Tomorrow was an off day. He said, I'm going to give you a choice. You can go down to Boston garden and ride the bus down there. We were staying at a hotel out of town that had a golf course built around it. He said, you can go down practice for an hour or, you can play nine holes of golf and turn your scorecard into me. And we we all kind of looked at each other like Freddie had just grown a second head or a third eye in his head or something. Like what, like, was he serious? And, uh, I I've, I've told this story to people and I said, so wh- what do you think we voted to do? And, and most people said, we well, had to go practice, right? I said, no, we golfed. Like I I was in my cast. I golfed and actually took care of my slice. I should have kept the cast on <laughs> for years after that. So we we golfed. And then dramatically in game two, you know, with less than a minute to go, we tied it and Clarkie won it in overtime. And we had our one game that we won. Uh, but Joe Watson tells the best story about getting off the off the plane and walking through the airport and picking up a newspaper and the the headline saying, you know, we all we've already beat a team better than the Boston Bruins and it was quoting a member of the Flyers organization. And Joe was you know walking along, say, who the who the hell would say that? Why the hell does someone, what the hell is going on? You know, Joe, like and Freddie Freddie Shiro was walking beside him, and Freddie said, I said it. Said <laughs> I, I really, th- I really thought the Rangers were a better team than the Bruins. He said, I think we just beat a team better than the Boston Bruins, and it made headlines. Uh, but, but Freddie was so brave. You know, he he didn't follow the same script that any other coach like don't give them any chance to put anything up on their bill on the on their wall in the locker room. Freddie was like, well, the hell with that. You know, let's let's just let's go for it. Um, and it was uh, just a, a dramatic time and a dramatic series all the way around, including including holding our breath in a one nothing Game 6 victory to clinch. We, we, I think we, like Bobby Clark could tell you that he was confident we would win no matter what, but I think most of the guys would say that if we had to go back to Boston for a Game 7, we didn't like our chances. Sure. So, you win, and then
3: is what I think a lot of people regard as the greatest, the, I guess the first in a long time, the best parade in city history. What do you remember about the parade?
7: Mayhem. I mean, it was so scary. Nobody knew that what the parade was going to be like. So they put each guy and his girlfriend or his wife in a car, right? Some convertible, some otherwise. And as we started the parade, I can't tell you where it started even, or where where it was supposed to end up. The, uh, the I mean, Clarkie and Bernie ditched the parade. It was such a mass of humanity that we all felt threatened. Like we were in a almost like a riot situation. I I remember uh, one of the mounted cops on on his horse between they they put, they ended up having to get a horse and a cop in between each car uh, so that they could swing their horses back and forth from side to side and literally knock people out of the way Mm -hmm. so the cars could get through. And we, it was, I, I was, it was really scary. I mean, if you were claustrophobic, you had a problem to begin with. But there was, I, I saw a horse fell on, on one of the one of the fans and, and the fan got injured. So it really, I think, took the whole city by surprise. Nobody, including the police force or the Flyers or anybody, had any idea that that first parade was going to be as, as well, I guess we could say as successful, because if you want to just evaluate success based on the number of people that attended the parade, it was that. Yeah. But man, oh man, was it mayhem.
4: Yeah, the city was, um, the city's expectation, they told the police to prepare for 100,000 people. Uh, is, that
7: what the, is that what was told, really? Yeah,
4: that was the police The police were told, prepare as if you're going to be dealing with 100,000 people, and they never expected it to be that. I mean, they thought they were way overstating it at 100,000, but let's say 100,000. Well, Bill, 2 million people came. And they were and you're right and and the, they were completely overwhelmed it was supposed to it started down at the spectrum and it was supposed to work its way through Center City and end up at Independence hall that's where the final that's where the final point was but I mean when once you got into the big buildings downtown you're right you just couldn't move
7: yeah um, I was really relieved when the parade ended um, and I I don't even know how how law enforcement communicated then. It was out of control. It it really was. I'm I'm really happy that you know nobody was seriously hurt. But but that really was the signal of the true love affair between the Broad Street Bullies and the city of Philadelphia. Yeah, I mean that 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 should have been the that's. That's the big billboard, right? The big neon billboard that flashed Love Affair Flyers and and, uh, Philadelphia. And it it never stopped for years and years and years.
3: So you win that year, and then they always say uh, repeating is twice as tough. But you guys do. Um, Next year, finals against Buffalo uh, goes to game six. By the way, Bill, I was in the seats as a teenage kid watching that game in Buffalo rooting against you. Uh, But you broke my heart because... It's a scoreless game through two periods. Bernie versus Roger Crozier. Bob Kelly scores, I think it's like 11 seconds into the third period. And then with under three minutes to go, you score the goal that just puts it away, 2-0 win. Biggest goal of your career. Bill, every kid's dream, you got to live that.
7: Yeah, and when I look back at it, I'm still kind of surprised at it um, in the sense that, um, well, first of all, Horace Kinderchuk, Sacrificed his body and sacrificed, I think, some of his career because he took a he got killed. They double covered him, Jerry Corab and I guess it was Bill Hite or Lee Fogelin along the boards, and they crushed Orest, But they made a bad mistake. They both took him, and I was wide open coming across the blue line, and Orest, as great a passer as he was, was able to get me the puck. And you know, I I knew I could skate, so I always would do a kind of a mental rehearsal before a game about a breakaway. Like, if I get a breakaway, what am I going to do? Well, Roger Crozier, I knew that he caught with his right hand, and I knew that he really, really crouched low. And I said to myself, okay, remember this. If you get a breakaway, think high glove on Crozier. So Orris got me the puck, and it, it seemed when I thought back, at, I, I, hadn't, I I went years without seeing a replay of it. And it seemed like I thought of, of, of so many things, and I thought I had quite a bit of time to think about this. The truth is that everything happened in about one second. I got the puck, I took it across the pass across my body, and I got it in the shooting position, and I'm thinking, high glove. And all I can see is five hole. And I knew, I, I, I heard Roger Crozier interviewed once, and he said, look, the, the thing that goalies have to remember is you never make the first move on a shooter. Right, let the person coming in on you on a breakaway make the first move, and then react to it. So I thought, okay, so chances are he ain't going to move. So I went in, 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 and I I was in the crease. I think when I chipped it between his pads, and I came close—if not touching one of his pads—I was that close to him, and it was so. It seemed so easy. that and it, and it and it shouldn't have been for me because I wasn't a prolific goal scorer. But it seemed my thought process; it all worked. It seemed so easy that I was sure that there had to be a whistle that I hadn't heard and that everybody had stopped playing. Mm-hmm. But then Joe Watson tackled me, and I knew it was real because he was screaming in my ear. And and I got, I kind of got mobbed on the ice. And when I got to the bench, it I was kind of in disbelief. Like, could this have really just happened? And sure enough, it did, and away we went. Uh, <laughs> but that was, then again, that was part of what our team was all about. Here we are in a, in a potential elimination game, which it turned out to be. And who are the guys that score the goals? Bob Kelly and Bill Clement, yeah. right? Yeah, and we, we 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 all chipped in when we had to.
4: I remember I remember interviewing Keith Allen um, in a couple of years after all of that, uh, and he said, "You know what, Billy didn't know." when he scored that goal, was he had, in effect, already been traded. That, um, th- that even while the series was going on, he and Milt Schmidt, the general manager of the Washington Caps, uh, had already discussed and agreed in principle for the trade that was going to send you to Washington when this was all said and done. The deal that was going to send you there for the first pick in the next draft, which turns out to be Mel Bridgman. They had already shaken. Yeah. They had already shaken hands and agreed to the trade before the series was ever over. So you were in effect already on. Uh, you know, when you scored the goal that wins the cup for the Flyers, the general manager had already in effect traded you.
7: Yeah, that wasn't really very nice, was it? I mean, yeah. for, him, for him to. T- <laughs> so a couple of interesting things about that. The the day of Game Six in Buffalo. There was an article in the, in the lead Buffalo in Buffalo News that one of either Bill Clement, Dave Schultz, Terry Chris, Bob Kelly, or Don Selesky was going to be traded to the Washington Capitals. And I read it, and I kind of just, you know, said, I, I've i got work to do today. I can't think about that very
4: much. And It really freaked Schultze out. I mean, he read that article, and he said it really bothered
7: him. Well, I talked to Davey. I felt I felt so bad for, for Schultze because we got talking on the plane. I mean, it was a love fest, right, when you win the Stanley Cup and we got to be together and skate the Cup in, in Buffalo as we really hadn't been given the opportunity the year before because there were so many fans on the ice in Philadelphia. But I, 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 I sat down beside Schultze and we were having a beer on the plane. And he said, boy, am I ever glad we won that. He said, I wasn't even close to being in that game. I said, what do you mean? He said, I my, I was so upside down emotionally. I I read that I might be traded, that article in the paper, that was strategically placed. I mean, the writers then were, you know, were, we everybody got to know them. They were fans of the team as opposed to, you know, guys that were competing with one another to write provocative and, and evocative stories. So uh, Davey read that, and he was completely undressed by it. And I felt really bad. For him, because he said, "I'm," he said, "I'm so so thankful I didn't make a bad mistake in that game because I wasn't in it even a bit from start to finish." Uh, and yeah, it, it, it's it's kind of interesting how things like that help you evaluate your ability to focus through things, one way or the other, right? Mm-hmm. You you're, yeah. you either have to get better at it or you you confirm that you're not too bad at it as it is. Um, I'm just thankful that we won as well. But, yeah, I mean, and and, and the, the draft was less than two weeks after that last game. And, and I was driving back to Canada and stopped at my wife's uh, aunt's place in Syracuse, spent the night there, and she woke me up about 8 in the morning. Um, and she came into the bedroom where I was sleeping, and she knocked on the door and opened the door, and she said, Keith Allen's on the phone. He wants to speak to you. And I sat straight up in bed and went out loud, uh-oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that's when Keith Keith very politely said, "You're moving on, son."
3: So we got about five minutes to go, and I really I want to give as much time as we can to your broadcasting career. So you got traded to the Caps of the draft pick turned out to be Mel Bridgman. Uh, you end up going to the Flames. You spend seven years, team captain, made two All Star games, great defensive player, uh, and then begins the transition out. Uh, you retire in 1981. Uh, eventually, you move into broadcasting, and you are part of a duo here in Philadelphia that many people, myself included, consider one of the best I've ever seen or heard do any team, which is you and Doc Emmerich. Uh, the chemistry you guys had I just thought was great. If I can ask you, um, what was it like to work with Doc, um, and and do you realize you guys were as great as you were?
7: No, I don't think we realized we were you know, it's funny, you just work from the inside out and really don't have the opportunity to, I mean, there's, there's no broadcast Olympics where somebody says, Hey, these guys win the gold medal. Yeah. And we, we, we were just focused on, on, on excellence. And that's, that's one thing that I so loved about working with doc. Not only was he generous and kind and sensitive as a partner, but we both wanted to be really good at what we did and we worked really hard at being really good we I'd have a little training camp at my house for about three years in a row and Coatsy jumped in on it and we would do all kinds of, of different television scenarios and and different calls and just try to hone our craft but um doc, it, it was such a privilege to be able to work with doc and by the way I worked with 36 different play by play Partners in my career. Some of them only one game, but the guys that I worked with the longest, and I was so fortunate Doc, and then Gary Thorne, and then Jim Jackson. I mean, this complete professionals. And I tell people anybody that is willing to listen, I said, you know what they all have in common? The best play by play guys, they're really freaking smart. I mean, their IQs are off the chart. I mean, Doc Doc is called Doc because he has a PhD. A lot of people don't know that, you know, in communication. Yep. So um yeah I was so blessed to be able to work with with guys that were you know that, that were really bright and that really cared about their craft and wanted to excel and those three guys are the three men that I worked with the longest Jim Jackson Gary Thorne and Doc Emrick and I, I I don't know if you could ask for anything more than that as an analyst
4: No they were they were great teams all of them and you were certainly a big part of that you know, Bill, I remember doing, oh, I guess must have been 10 years, maybe more, after your career was over, uh, doing a retrospective about uh, the Broad Street Bullies and that era and the back-to-back Cups and the teams that you were a part of. And I said to you, you know, there's still very mixed emotions up through the Canadian provinces and through the hierarchy of the National Hockey League about what that flyer team represented and that era of hockey. And you know, as well as everybody else knows, that you were not, you were not a popular champion team. I mean, there there was a lot of, right. there were a lot of people didn't like that team, didn't like their style of play. Uh, and look back on that, and, you know, 10 Dryden's written books about it. That was a dark era for hockey and everything. And you said, you know, the people who feel that way about our team, they can go to hell, was what you said. And I thought you know, and I thought that was, you know, I understood exactly where that was coming from. Because other people kind of gave political answers about it. But you just said basically, look, our team, we were really good. We had a lot of really good players, a lot of whom were in the Hall of Fame. And we played our butts off every night and filled every building in the National Hockey League. So anybody that wants to sit on a high horse now and criticize us, they can go to hell. I thought that was really well said.
7: I haven't changed my opinion one bit, right? <laughs> uh, since then. We're, I'm, I'm non-apologetic. I don't think any of our players are. And I really think that all of those people that were Flyers haters, look, you, you end up living vicariously through your team, whether you're a writer or a fan. And, and, and it, it's it's almost like being a parent. It, like if your kid came home and every day he was had a black eye because the other kid at school was bigger and stronger and tougher than him, you'd end up hating him too. But I I really think that, you know, people live vicariously through their connections with their sports teams. And it's one thing for their team to lose. You kind of go home licking your wounds. But when you lose and you also lose the battles and the physical battles and the fights, it's insulting to many people. And I think really that the genesis of a lot of those opinions about it being bad for the sport was simply a product of them, you know, crying because they, they not only lost, but got beat physically in the process. At least some of it is that. I, I don't think that anybody ever. And, and you know what? It's, nobody in Boston said that we were, you know, uh, 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 antiChrists and and didn't belong in the NHL. The people in Montreal might have, but I'll tell, the Montreal Canadiens, uh, they they played hard and they were if they they were bloodied, but they were unbowed most of the time. Uh, I'm yeah. I, I mean, I I still say that Ray. I think people can go to hell that that they didn't evaluate our team for for what we had. It was the image that we had that made them say that we didn't belong. That we didn't deserve the cups. We had a gosh. Take a look at the players that we had: Barber and Leach and McLeish and Jimmy Watson and Bernie. Come on, we we had a really good team. They just didn't like our style. I'm not I'm non-apologetic. I will I will say that again <laughs> as loudly as I can.
3: Bill Clement, uh, you had a lot of uh, opportunities over the last 25 years or so after your career, when, when you were broadcasting, excuse me, uh, ESPN, NBC, you did the Olympics, you acted, uh, you were in a soap opera for a while, you, are, you were the voice of a uh, NHL video game, which is where my kids remember you from. Any that was a, a favorite gig over those years?
7: You know the the only thing that I've ever done that really spoke back to me and said this is what you're meant to do was not hockey, it was not broadcasting, it was acting. Hmm. And we were living in New York. My my wife, I had I had divorced um, my first wife, and my wife Sissy and I had met on an audition. We were paired up to read as husband and wife, and we 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 did really well in Atlanta. Ask agents if we were good enough to compete in New York. They said, "Sure, yeah, you are." So we went to New York. We still weren't, weren't married, but the phone rang one day and it was ESPN asking me if I wanted to, to audition for one of their jobs as color analyst. And I can tell you guys that auditioning for your lunch and your rent as an actor every week, it, it's, it's hard. So the idea of a regular paycheck kind of appealed to me. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll audition for one of the spots as color analyst. Brad Park had left the booth and gone to coach Detroit Red Wings. So I said, what does the uh, audition consist of? And they said, a live game on the air. And I swallowed real hard. And I said, okay, and went to Chicago Stadium and did a game, Minnesota North Stars in Chicago, and ended up getting the job and never looked back and and did very well broadcasting. But the one thing that seemed to speak to me was acting. and, And I loved it but I had to make the choice. My, my broadcasting career grew as it grew the emphasis on an acting career. That's why my name is pronounced Clement now. I was Bill Clement my whole life. But when I got to ESPN, I said, can we pronounce my name Clement on the air? I don't want to be recognized as a sportscaster when I go into a serious acting audition. <laughs> and they said, yeah, sure. So I'm the only one in my family stuck with a mispronunciation of my name. Bill, we gotta we got to wrap this up. Um, uh, w- one last question. I want to
3: ask you what you're kind of doing in retirement. But before that, last time we spoke to you, which um, was shortly after hockey came back from the pandemic, um, you were out as a broadcaster at NBC Sports Philadelphia. And, you know, you said you were ready for retirement, but there was a sense that they kind of had left you hanging there. Um is that true, and how do you feel about that looking backwards?
7: I think it was t- I think I was ready to retire, but I, I would have to wait and wait and wait and wait to see what my role would be, to see if there was a contract offer coming my way. And I, I, in that sense, I felt disrespected that I, that I deserved more communication than that. So it was time. I, I wish it had happened differently because I I did not feel that I was respected as I was preparing for my retirement. Um and I, I move on. I you know, I, I don't hold grudges and I don't look back. My nature is to always look forward. I and the rear view mirror is, is something that is for other people I guess. I'm I'm too busy figuring out what I'm gonna do next. So there was a, a somewhat of a bad taste in my mouth, but you know, a little bit of mouthwash and, and, and a martini, and everything's okay moving <laughs> well, forward. I would I would separate those two by an
3: hour or so, but I got you. Uh, <laughs> listen, it, it was uh, it was a pleasure watching you as a player in this town. It was definitely a pleasure having you as a broadcaster, and uh, it's been a pleasure for us this hour. Bill Clement is our guest on Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at wip. Bill, all the
0: best to you, man. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bill.
7: Thank you.